I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1992, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1992 here from our perch in 2023. I am one of your hosts, Phil Isco. And I am your special guest host, Emily St. James. I'm not making a joke this week. (laughs) (laughs) With us today is the co-creator of SWAT, Aaron Rasan Thomas, is with us today to talk about Spike Lee's, I'm just going to say it, masterpiece, uh, Malcolm X. I, so... There was no question, Aaron, that I wanted to have you on to talk about this film. I know this is a, a film that you love, and uh, we, we, Kenny and I had you on for Do the Right Thing, and we talked, obviously, a little bit about Spike then, um, or a lot about Spike then, but um, this is a movie that, I have to be perfectly honest, I did not see in the theater. Um, I was 12 when this came out. That's not to say that I couldn't have no seen excuse. this film. No excuse. <laughs> there is no excuse. I mean, literally, Spike was telling kids to... to like uh, cut class to see this movie <laughs> but I, by the way i was that kid we'll, we'll talk about that yeah <laughs> so i i i but i really want to sort of i want to know what it was like for you when this film comes out and 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 sort of your history with this movie uh yeah well so first of all phil emily thanks for having me and um it's always a, a pleasure to to come on and discuss uh, shop and film. Um, but certainly, uh, to give a little context for this particular film, Malcolm X, um, you know, directed by the, 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 I don't want to say legend, it makes him sound old, but certainly the, uh, the icon. Uh, although that might make him say, uh, they're the, the great, the great Spike Lee. Um, 
You know, what I would say, first of all, this is a film that came out and it was released in 1992. You know, this is kind of a time period in which, you know, we still, right kind of before independent films had taken over, we still had a mix of independent filmmakers and also really big, ambitious biographies that would be released, you know, in the vein of like Gandhi, you know, years before. Um, and what I... There were a few things that I knew at the time. I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. Um, I had known Spike Lee's work for years based on Do the Right Thing. And even before that, School Days, which uh, was about um, kind of life at historically black colleges and definitely had an impact on me. And even before that, he had a student film called uh, uh, Joe's Bedsty, uh, We Cut Heads, about a barbershop in Bedsty, Brooklyn, that I was uh, familiar with. And Spike's name was always on kind of in our conversations because he was like one of the few black filmmakers that you could actually name, you know, uh, amongst all the conversation about the Steven Spielbergs and at this point Soderbergh uh, was coming up and of course George Lucas and Scorsese and um, I'd hear my white colleagues pull out 10, 15 names of, of filmmakers they admired and we had like two. I could pull out Spike. And maybe if I really wanted to get into it, I could pull out some more obscure names, um, Gordon Park, you know, for African-Americans at least, and then some foreign filmmakers as well, um, uh, Melvin Van Peebles. But anyway, when this film came to be, I remember it being a whole journey um, where you heard that Hollywood was interested in making a film about Malcolm X. Um, you know, a lot of myself and my peers were familiar, of course, with the Malcolm X biography, a classic biography written by Alex Haley. My mother was the type of mother who introduced me to that book and The Godfather in the same summer. I had to read that in like oh, wow. middle school. It says <laughs> a lot about my mom. Um, but, but definitely the story was one that myself and a lot of my friends were already familiar with. And the question sure. was at the time, I remember even before the film was released, was is Hollywood really equipped to do a film like this? This this isn't this isn't you know a civil rights nonviolent figure you know that maybe you can gloss over a little bit. Um, this is Malcolm X, lightning rod, strong opinions, um, very strong opinions toward white people across yeah. the planet. Um, Hollywood, which at that point had a, a strong tradition in treating the subject matter like any other biography where typically you get a middle-aged white guy to go and direct it, it was kind of like, do we, are they really going to try this with Malcolm X? So there's this whole kind of journey of who's going to even make this film, who's going to be the director for this film. And, um, and through a lot of, you know, different behind closed doors conversations and, you know, this is before social media, but they already knew that there would be an outrage, you know, there's more of an awareness, you know, this is during the time of the Rodney King, uh, you know, uh, beating and there's a lot of awareness in the air about like representation and, you know, do we know better and can we do better? So when, when it was announced that Spike would take this on instead of your typical treatment from Hollywood. Norman Jewison America, in particular was the, the person. That yeah. He, yeah. Yeah. And, but it was the first time that I recall there being a major biography about a black figure that was going to be directed by Absolutely. a black director, and not only a black director, but a seminal black director. Yeah. So even before the film came out, there was already a ton of buzz. 
You know, I, I remember to this day personally, I remember even the early um the early promos, the the one sheet uh posters was just a giant X and the date underneath. It was like November second. I even ripped off that that style. I ran for president of my junior class in high school and I used that. I just put wasn't as quite profound. I put a giant A for my name and then I put <laughs> put the date of the uh the election underneath. But but I to say that I was influenced or you know, um, or inspired by this, by Spike in this particular film, I can't under, well, I can't overstate it enough. Um, when a lot of my friends, white peers, were talking about Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and Mamet, and being influenced by, um, you know, different filmmakers at the time, Spike and this movie in particular was that for me. Um, so yeah, I was I was hyped. I was ready when Spike. You know, talked about uh, recommended that students uh, skip class in order to go. I was already there. He didn't even have to say it. Like that's happening. <laughs> like that. That's happening. I'm definitely. I are, you don't need much of an excuse to want to, but to have something legit where you can. You know, what's a teacher going to say? What did you skip school for? I went to see Malcolm X. <laughs> so what? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it was that kind of situation, and. Um, and you know that was just the lead up to it. I was I was super pumped, excited, and that's before I even got into an understanding of what truly went into getting the film made, and that being its own epic journey and discovery, you know, into itself. Um, if this were in the age now of social media, yeah, almost every step of this film would be an epic, you know. I don't even know if it would happen the same way, really. But every step of this this film was an epic saga into itself. Um, you know, the initial development, the you know, the bringing together Spike and the material, Spike's um, own kind of like very considerate, considerable and understandable reservations about taking on Malcolm X, not just as a lightning rod for the world, but also understanding you're dealing with the nation of Islam, you're dealing with certain perceptions even within the black community that can wreck you if you don't do this right. Um, the casting of casting Denzel, not everyone was crazy about that, but you know some were supportive because people were very protective of Malcolm X. Imagine like a legit political version of, of how hype people get when Superman gets cast. Yeah, but, sure, sure. But, but imagine that for like a real figure <laughs> who actually like changed lives. That 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 was going on too. You know, is Denzel tall it's, enough? Is he light skinned enough? All of that kind of stuff. Well, that was what I found interesting. You know, in the I didn't do a ton of research. I'm not going to lie, but I, you know, the research that I did do, I was, I was sort of amazed by how much pushback spike got from a lot of the black community as well like he was kind of getting it from all sides it, it was not a you know as 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 passionate as he was and as sort of adamant that he was that he get this assignment for lack of a better way of putting it once he got it he had to be wondering what what did i do like he in every interview i've seen with him and i i was watching all the all the features on the criteria and there's all sorts of interviews with him and making of and what have you. And he's just like, I couldn't walk down the street without 10 people saying, don't fuck up Malcolm. <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, I can't imagine the, the pressure. It's just, um, this is a figure that meant a lot of different things to a lot of different yeah. people. 
And on top of that, even, you know, aside from it being Malcolm X, again, it's the first prominent Black biography done by a Black filmmaker. So that in itself is already, there's a lot of pressure. And you're underfunded based on how much money the studio at that time is is offering for you to to make the film. Um, You know, and you're at a time where, frankly, I think this film was well ahead of its time. Um, you know, in many ways. I, I look back on, I think, you know, it's kind of a given now that we look back and we go, you know, Denzel nominated for Best Ask, Actor Oscar. Not that Oscars are the be-all, end-all, but they are, you know, hallmarks of what's valued in the in the business. But I think it's universally recognized that, you know, Denzel kind of got robbed for not winning Best Ask, Actor that year. And this is coming from a huge, a huge Al Pacino fan, you know, but it's kind of that domino effect of Pacino should have gotten it for Godfather and Godfather 2 and instead he gets it for Sin of a Woman and Denzel doesn't get it for Malcolm X, which is a crime. And then there are other things like, uh, you know, Delroy Lindo, who who's an actor in this film as uh, West Indian Archie, does a fantastic job and doesn't even get nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I think if that film is done now, no question, both of them get nominated. Denzel probably wins. Um, and then there's a whole host of elements. The score is fantastic. Um, Cinematography is unbelievable. Cinematography I mean... is, yeah, is, is, is ridiculous. And then... <laughs> Uh, Ruth Carter, who did the the wardrobe, who she ended up winning two Oscars for Black Panther and the sequel for Black Panther. She she did Malcolm X, and frankly, I'm just as impressed, if not more, by what she did with Malcolm X on a very limited budget. Yep. You know, um, there's just a lot of elements that I think in 1992 were kind of like alien landing on the Earth for the first time. Absolutely. Like, what what do we do with this? And now it's like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. You know that that would per- fit perfectly for what we're we're ready for now. Yeah, I, I you know the thing that kind of hit me as I was watching it again is this movie's three hours and twenty minutes long, and it moves unbelievably well. Like it does not. You, I, I, I didn't feel its length. That being said, releasing a three hour and twenty minute movie in the theaters is its own hill to climb too, right? I mean, from a box office perspective, and you know. So you, you you have to feel like this movie also has kind of a foot in movie history too, right? Like it, it it's he talks a lot. Spike talks a lot about the influences of Lawrence Arabia and all these sort of like big, big Hollywood epics, and that he wanted this film to feel that way, which it does. But in '92, I'm not sure that people knew what to do with a movie of that breadth, of that heft, of that size, and I think that that also was a hill to climb. And on top of all of that, you have, as you said, not nearly enough black filmmakers at the time. So you've got a lot of, I imagine, white people in Hollywood feeling somewhat alienated by this, as ridiculous as that is to sound. So I feel like all of that is why you have a film that unquestionably should have been nominated for far more Academy Awards than it was nominated. It only got two Oscar nominations, which is absurd. But um, Emily, what is your what's your history with this movie? Um, I, uh, I would genuinely, I was like very fascinated by Spike Lee. Like Mm. I, I, Aaron, just to catch you up and the listeners already know this. I grew up in a town of 750 people. We didn't have a movie theater. 
and the closest movie theater had three screens so it never showed malcolm x but i remember reading about spike lee saying kids should skip school and me being like yeah i should fucking skip school i should go see malcolm x and like i don't know if that was if that was driven more by like being curious about his films or wanting to skip school honestly probably the latter but um i uh i in college happened to catch bamboozled on late night tv and watched all of it and this is the most emily story i was just like imp- i was so taken with it. i thought it was so great i thought it was so cool i thought it was such a like it made me think about things in a new way sure. and so then i just kind of went on a spike lee kick and like watched the movies people you know said you needed to watch and i watched malcolm x and was like really blown away by it and then i rewatched it over a couple nights it's it's long and i have a baby um and yeah i was i was even more taken with it this time i like i was thinking about how if you made this now at at the time people were not making movies this length it was really rare to make a three-hour movie in the in the late 80s early 90s you know um and so i do think people were a bit thrown by that and i also think like you know, if you were going to make this now, it would be a four episode miniseries. You can even see where they'd put the episode yeah. breaks, yeah. but there's something to be said for a movie like this, putting you in its mindset and saying, you are going to sit here and you're going to live with this. Even when you watch it over two nights, as I did, you know, you have to consider it as a whole, which is a thing that like, for as much as I love limited series, it's a thing that they kind of fail at. They don't really make you think about this as a whole you know, as much as they do a discrete series of parts. And I think that would be a real disservice to this film, which is, um, uh, you know, one of, to me, one of the great American films and my favorite Spike Lee. And I think Denzel honestly gives one of the like 20 best performances in cinema history. Like I'm so agog at at him. And also Angela Bassett, who uh, is given a role that is always hard in these movies, the wife who's at home, who answers the phone. And she's so good. And she goes toe to toe with him a couple times. She's so fantastic. I also feel like I was thinking that about Angela Bassett as well. You know, the, the quote unquote wife role in situations like this can be uh, underwritten, you know, can be just sort of emotional wallpaper. And yet they're courting I find fascinating like mm-hmm. the, 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 their dates, the way that, that she, th- there's a fortitude to her. There's a complexity to her in those scenes. And part of it is just because Angela Bassett is a force of nature in and of herself, but it is just, um, you can tell that they've taken care to make sure that this performance and that this role doesn't feel discardable, doesn't feel disposable. Um, which I think is part of it is I believe Malcolm's wife was an advisor on the film. <laughs> so I imagine that's definitely a part of it. Um, but there's just a lot of things about this film. You know, you, you, you hinted at it, Aaron, in terms of its development, in terms of its production, um, you know, in terms of the film being bonded um, and Warner brothers being incredibly sort of concerned about the length and the cost and all of these things that it was sort of taking on on top of the fact that spike was a still a somewhat unproven name when it comes to films of this size and of this nature. Um, it, it's just kind of fascinating that 
and and Spike, as we all know, is a outspoken person. So my guess is that he was not particularly, um, you know, he didn't walk on eggshells around it, nor should he. But I think it is it's fascinating that so there there comes sort of a point in this in the process of making this film where basically Warner Brothers, you know, turns off the spigot and says we're not putting any more money into this thing. And, you know, obviously, historically, this is sort of the big thing that the people talk about is that he went to a handful of prominent black entertainers and said, you know, essentially, like, you're not you're this is not a loan. <laughs> you're, you're not getting this money back. Like, this is money that you are putting into this movie so that this vision of mine can happen. And. You know, uh, Bill Cosby, Oprah Winfrey, Janet Jackson, Prince. Uh, my favorite bit is that he he saved Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan as the last two people that he asked, knowing how competitive they were. He got Magic to put up a certain amount of money, then called Michael and said, this is how much he put in so that Michael Jordan would put in more, which I, I think is amazing. Um, it, it is, it's, you know. Uh, Michael Jordan is so famously tries to stay apolitical. So I was, I was amazed to see his name on that list. Sorry, Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's, there's so many elements to the way this film was made and completed that are are just amazing into themselves. Like at some point in the same way that Paramount did, you know, story about the offer and the making of the Godfather, you could make a limited series just on, on by completing the film, like literally, because that aspect you have that aspect going on, and and Emily's right. Like Jordan's not only known at that time for being apolitical, but also one of the cheapest individuals on the planet. So you have those two elements, but he's also, you know, he's he's psychotically competitive, which Spike tapped into. It's a bit of a masterclass in how do you raise funds. You know, what's the art of playing egos off of each other in order to get what you need? And not only did he get funding then from, you know, Michael Jordan and and, and Magic, but he also had them wearing merchandise for the film at the time. Oh, wow. And, and this was at a time, too, 1992, Magic and Jordan were playing for the Dream Team in the Summer Olympics in Barcelona. They were... Two of the most famous individuals in the world, along with Janet Jackson and Oprah, these are all individuals that are not just your standard celebrities. These are like, you know, we're talking about six, seven of the most famous people of maybe the 20 most famous people on the planet are contributing to one film. And now they're wearing merchandise with spikes. Um, It's probably, do the right things may be up there, but certainly Malcolm X might be, I would guess, probably the, the largest selling merchandise film that that spikes ever had i mean that became kind of a fashion statement for for a couple of years was the hat with the x on it um you know i was gonna ask you know at that time you had the shirts you had like you had i mean that x was everywhere it seemed like and it must have been incredible it, what's interesting about it is that if you think about it from like the Warner Brothers perspective, they're they're almost marketing this like a Batman movie, right? Like the Bat insignia and the X is, you know what I mean, a little bit synonymous, which I think is is fascinating considering how, as you said, like he's a volatile character. You know what I mean? It, it, uh, uh, historically, um, which I just think is really interesting. I, I I think that today, 
would you do you think it'd be the same today? Do you think that if Warner Brothers was making this film that they would market it in the same way? Or do you think they'd be too scared? I, I think I think that, you know, the idea of the mysterious one sheet, unfortunately, with so much information out there is is probably gone. You know, even mm-hmm. even for Batman, you couldn't just come out with a poster with just the bat signal on it. And that's it. Six months. You know, I, it's, you're getting updates right now, every day. What's going on with Deadpool? What's going on? I think the same would be the case with any film. The mystery would be gone. But you know what, what would be, I, I think, what would be played up a lot more is if you had any film whatsoever where all of a sudden, again, eight of the biggest celebrities are, you know, contributing to the funding. I think, first of all, you know, the, the studio itself would be too embarrassed to allow that to happen. They're like, there's no way we're going <laughs> to imagine if like Beyonce and Jay-Z and, and like, you know, like they're all like, OK, Warner Brothers is being cheap. So we're going to help, you know, we're going to have Jordan Poole finish this film now. That's such egg on the face that gets spread and gets debated and gets over debated on Twitter now. I don't know if that happens in the same way, um, but certainly I think you use that for momentum. Like, you know, if you wanted, if you had any kind of project where you have that kind of star power behind it to support it, um, in this day and age, I would think that's a plus. Um, for you sure, know, for if, sure. If, if it happens. Um, you know, the, the idea of merch is just different now. It's, it's, it feels like it's gone a lot more kind of grassroots, you know, kind of micro brands, if you will, you know, um, individuals kind of have their own versions of the the t-shirt or the hat whereas back then it felt like you could galvanize an entire audience behind bikes merch that's the official x merchandise now would be like there's definitely like 10 different you know just grassroots t-shirt makers that would have like 15 different versions of the malcolm x t-shirt that you can buy online no problem right now for 20 bucks for Um, sure I felt like back then, like the the access to merch was a little more limited. So if you got, I got a hat, by the way, and it felt special. Like yeah. I got an X hat, you know. It's like <laughs> before it sold out. Um, he still so, you does. Know. I mean, Spike is still. I mean, has his official merch that he sells through his own website. And and um, I remember, I think it was probably about a year or two ago. It might have even been around the anniversary of Malcolm X. He had the official one sheets for sale that he was signing. And, you know, there's probably like, you know, maybe 200 of them or something like that. But, you know, again, there's just sort of this, yeah, he he is a brand unto himself. You know what I mean? Whether or not, I mean, obviously Malcolm X is part of that. Um, but still, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, you, you talked about the, there's sort of two things that I wanted to bring up about uh, essentially this film is screened at Warner brothers the day of the Rodney King verdict. So Spike Lee is flying into Los Angeles as it burns essentially, and is about to screen this film and which opens with the Rodney King footage cross cut with the the burning American flag and the, and Malcolm's speech. And I'm just thinking to myself, like if you're a Warner brothers the day this thing screens and you know that this city is erupting in violence. Like, I mean, you're not given notes. <laughs> you, know what I mean? like, <laughs> you would think so. You would think so. Uh, I don't know if, is, is there anything strong enough to stop the tide of, of studio notes? That would be, you would think that would be question. enough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the stories you you would hear about uh, that time period in LA, and I don't know if everyone realizes how widespread from from the stories that you hear, how widespread the the effects of the riots were. It wasn't just confined to like one area, one neighborhood. It was like, from what I hear, even at Warner Brothers, you could see the smoke, like you know, billowing in the air. So I mean, I imagine you know, walking out of the screening. They have very visceral reminders of like where they are and when they are. Um, it was a timely film, and and certainly it's one of the reasons why I think that the opening works in many ways even now. It's, you know, Spike really made it a film of the moment as well as a, a timeless uh, biography. I, I would also say too. I mean, the the thing that hit me. As I, there's a lot of things that hit me rewatching this film, but just, um, you know, sadly, unfortunately, we haven't really learned that much. You know what I mean? I the, the Rodney King situation, you know, and and George Floyd, and and just all of this, it does feel as though we just have not made nearly enough progress. Not just from obviously from Malcolm X's time, but from '92 when this film came out. Um, this film is still so incredibly powerful because of of the lingering effects of of, of all of this. I, I I don't know. I was I was really kind of hit with just the the. There's a, a moment in the film where Malcolm is talking about how. Uh, essentially the KKK has evolved into the police state, right? And that, and I mean, we heard all of that again during the, the, you know, Black Lives Matter protests and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it, it, it still is just so unbelievably prevalent still. I, I just, it's, it's heartbreaking and, and just how right he was back in the sixties. A thing. Yeah. That, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Emil. A thing that I think, uh, Spike Lee has always done. And when you read some of the contemporaneous reviews and discussion of this film, it unnerves a lot of, frankly, white people, is that he takes these events that are supposedly historic and places them in the modern context. He says, here's how this is still going on. And even when he's telling a story set in the present, he's saying, this is set in this neighborhood, but it's happening everywhere. He's very careful to if you are watching his films as a white viewer to challenge you to uh, examine the ways that you are complicit in what is happening, uh, examine the ways in which, you know, Malcolm X would be very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, would really um, push you to see yourself in a different way. Across, Malcolm X had many different sort of statements he made across his life, but all of them would push you. to some extent when I, I i think too sorry Aaron. i was just very quickly just going to say okay. that that you know the the one of the most powerful things about this film is the arc of malcolm and the and the journey and the and the evolution of this individual um it's part of why i think spike was so adamant that the film be as long as it was is to show these different changes that he goes through and how he could say one thing in the middle of the film and then by the end of the film have a completely different perspective on that and i think one of the challenges he you know brought was to challenge people to look inside themselves and to evolve and to and to push themselves to think outside you know very strict social parameters that seem to exist yeah he's um you know what i would say too you know there's a few times that that 
Malcolm, you know, in real life, and you can see it from a lot of the quotes that he gave, was not one to hold his tongue. You know, was was very um, honest and very straight to the point. You know, Spike is the perfect filmmaker to take on this subject matter because Spike is known, you know, to be that way as well. You know, there are moments like um, in the film where he goes to lecture on the college campus and the liberal white woman who comes up and, you know, does the liberal white woman thing of, you know, I'm not a bad person. I just want to do something. And even though my parents and my ancestors, blah, 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 what can I do? And left to any other hands, you know, a lot of times people will have that instinct of like, you know, person seems to be coming with good intentions. Let me make, you know, kind of ease their discomfort. Malcolm was not that dude. When she asks, what can I do to help? And he says, nothing, and then walks off. Yeah. I remember that leaving an impression on me when I watched it as a teenager, like, hell yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? Because it's true. He's not, he's not being, you know, he's just being, he's, what he is is laying out that this problem is much bigger than just your own individual guilt. You know, you have, you might have those feelings, um, but we have much bigger fish to fry than me right now taking time to try to make you feel comfortable um there are a lot of black artists who i know that on a day-to-day -day basis that is the battle you fight from every, second to second as soon as you're talking about anything that's even remotely sensitive you're deciding how do i want to gauge this you know do i want to be mindful of the fragile emotions and feelings surrounding this regarding the people you know around me or do i want to give it to them straight no chaser the way Malcolm did. And ev everybody I know wants to do what Malcolm did. You want to just say straight up, no, that's bullshit. Nope. That's not going to be good enough. It just isn't. Um, now, there are ways to move forward and to, you know, and I think that's one of the things that the film la lays out that you indicated, Phil, is that Malcolm evolved in a way, too, where he's able to recognize that there is a, um, you know, there is a way to work together, everyone to to figure out better ways to do this. But there has to be real honest conversations about it. You know, we have to move past the, the era of uh, driving Miss Daisy and Green Book and, sure, you know, sure. and have like honest, blunt conversations about it before you can, um, you can really get to a place of mutual respect, um, you know, totally. Um, there's something else I was going to say, and I'm, and, and I'm, I'm and I think it'll come back to me, but it was it was in response to something you just said. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to mention that I didn't mention earlier is, um, and this is a bit of a, a a bit of an aside, but with the crew that was assembled and the team that was assembled, you know, the the DP of this was the esteemed Ernest Dickerson, who mm -hmm. I think directed a few episodes of Sleepy Hollow, at least one. He did. He did. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible too that he's an individual that doesn't always get the uh, the respect that he should. And this is a situation where you know, I just want to shout that out before mm -hmm. we get too far too far in. I I you know, Spike. Speaking of of the below the line component of this film, you know, Spike was very adamant. He has a team of people mostly African-American in terms of the people that he works with. Um, Ernest Dickerson, Terrence Blatchard, Ruth Carter, uh, Wynn Thomas. You know, these are all people that he's worked with many times since. Um, 
I think he does have a white editor, which I guess is interesting if you want to think about it that way. But I, I do think that, you know, uh, and, and even Delroy talks about this uh, on one of the documentaries that I was watching where he was just so sort of moved by the fact that everywhere he looked, black people were making this film and that he felt, you know, the, the, a sense of community in terms of what was trying to be achieved with this film. And, and I, I think you sense that. I think you, I think you feel that. I think that watching the, these documentaries about the making of this film and, and of how sort of hard it was to make, this wasn't an easy film to make by any means, just on a, on a physical level. Um, you know, I was, I, one of the things I love is the first shot of this film was the hardest shot in the entire film to do uh it cost a million dollars just to do this one shot uh it's it's this shot of the train going by and seeing and and sort of you know pulling up on shorty as he's getting his shoes shined as he walks into the barber shop um and it's a beautiful shot with this just the sun's just it, it, it's it's beautifully nostalgic in the way that it's sort of lulling you into this sense of how wonderful this world was that he was a part of. Um, it's this wonder of all these extras and these cars going by. It's a beautiful shot, but I mean, in Ernest Dickerson to this day is just like, it was, it was so difficult to do. So <laughs> I, I have a couple of things on that. Yeah. And then, yeah. I, then I also remember what I was going yeah, yeah, yeah. to say, something that you and Emily had mentioned. So with that shot, it's funny because I noticed different things when I watch it at different ages. You know, when I was a, a, a when I first watched it initially, uh, I remember being a little bit confused by the shot. I thought it was beautiful. You know, it was beautifully shot. It looks great. You know, we're getting into you know kind of that, that World War II era. Yeah, you know, and it sets the, the tone. But I remember being a little bit put off in that the first thing we're introduced to was Spike with Spike and Spike's face. So I'm like, That's interesting. Come on, Spike. Or he just got <laughs> off of like a really good intro and, you know, we're going to go to you first. That said, I look at it differently. I've looked at it differently as I've gotten older where um, now understanding the context of that world a lot more, every single element in that frame, in the, in the opening frames, has been well thought out and you can see it. The the very the billboard that we land on after uh, the initial intro of the burning of the American flag off of the Rodney King beating, which by the way, into itself was its own saga. Just that sure. that element to itself would have gotten spiked. I don't want to say the word canceled because I don't you know I don't think that that's a pro you know like sure. I, it would have definitely gotten him heat um, on social media now. But coming off of that. And seeing a billboard um, for, I think it's Coca-Cola with a bunch of white sailors around a white lady before a train passes by. What I now understand with all of that, you know, is this is World War II time. It's a time when almost every advertisement you see is white people. That's, those are the images you see. And that plays out later in the film where we see white Jesus, all of these images of white people that you literally look up to. It's also a time period where, and he's setting the tone from that very first image, it's a time period where a lot of people have it pretty tough as far as like even buying clothes. Fabric is, is in short demand. And that's a period where the zoot suit, you know, these kind of flamboyant, like really colorful, you know, ostentatious like presentations. Hats. And the hat was literally kind of like a spit in the face of people that, you know, but at least that was that's the way it was perceived. And a lot of times perceived in particular by military men coming back home. 
Now, that element of the story doesn't play out completely in this film, but the fact that he's starting off showing that this is kind of what America values and then coming down to these guys who are cocking their hair and wearing zoot suits, where, like, literally in L.A., there's riots over those suits, just the suits, the zoot suit riots, because, mm -hmm. you know, because of their presentation. Now I look at it as like, oh, there's a lot of, like, subtext that he's playing just within that first shot i get it i understand it a lot more um you know i it's hard to really even like compare what that element is like today but the closest thing i can come to is when you see you see a bunch of kids sagging their pants you know and like the way it's seen as cool by some corners and other corners it's the most despicable thing you've ever seen i think that's a little bit of how zoot suits were seen at the time and so the fact that Spike's setting that up is this is, we're literally coming down to a level where, you know, these guys are operating, you know, in an area where they're, they are thought of as less than, and they're, this is the way that they, they kind of wear their armor, I think is now brilliant when I see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the way it flips as well when, you know, he first meets uh, West Indian Archie and meets that guy at the bar and the guy is making fun of his out, like how, how the costumes speak of your social status and where you are in the hierarchy of things, I think is, is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, I, I mean, yes, yeah, sir. Go ahead, please. No, there's, there was one other thing. If you were going to make a point on this, uh, then, then go ahead. But there was something else that, that you and Emily have mentioned that it, it just reminded yes. me that I want to follow up on. Yeah. was you had mentioned the arc, the character arc of Malcolm X, which is no small thing. I, I think that's one of the reasons why I would give Denzel the Oscar is because he had to play, in essence, kind of three different characters over the course of this yeah. film. Very different than, let's say, what he had to do for Training Day, which he ended up winning an Oscar for in the early mm -hmm. you know, 2000s. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he went from opening moments of this film, he's playing a fresh-faced, you know, kid who never had his hair conked, probably never had, well, really had sex before. He's lying about it, I think, when he's, um, when he's talking about it. To edgy criminal, to monk. I, I thought what, what it did really well for the, regarding casting, now looking back on it, having like his career to look at, is it, it marries edgy Denzel, which you see in like Glory mm -hmm. and Training Day, sure. with, with monk Denzel. Um, which you see in a lot of the dad roles and, and, and sometimes in real life from Denzel. Sure. It, it's the only role I've ever seen where he plays both, both mm -hmm. elements of Denzel throughout a film. And it also, what it does in the film does is, and I think that's why structurally it works really well. It's probably my favorite biography of all time. There's not a lot of bios that I can say I would watch more than once. You know, once you've seen it, you've kind of seen it. Malcolm X is one of the few I would watch as just a movie, not just as a bio, but it's, it's a great coming of age story. You know, mm -hmm. it's literally at every turn, he's a different mentor. He's a mentor initially with Shorty, who's showing him how to dance and how to dress and how to walk in the suit. You know, he has a mentor in West Indian Archie who shows him how to dress like a man and presents herself as a proper criminal. Yeah. Um, and then you get into the mentorship of Baines in prison and later Elijah Muhammad. And of course, that's before we get to the betrayal. But it's a series of the guy who's growing up. He's, he's learning each time how to be comfortable in his own skin in, in each of these worlds until finally he has to stand on his own, you know, at the end yeah. and go against, you know, the, 
probably the most sincere mentor he's ever had. It's it's just even aside from just the specifics of Malcolm X and the specifics of that world, that idea of growing in different phases into becoming your own person is rarely where I've seen it done as well as as in this film. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, go ahead, sorry, I'm, I'm, even I'm, even at the even in that last bit, he's really like he's learning how to listen to Betty, how to sort of be mentored by Betty in a weird yeah. way, having her open his eyes to the things that are happening to other women uh, in this organization. And that's a, a really, uh, that's a really interesting turn. I was, I was thinking about this question of why this movie works where a lot of these big biopics just kind of, you watch them one time and you're like, yeah, like, uh, like Gandhi is the classic example. That's a pretty good movie, but you know, I've watched it one time. I don't need to see it again. I could watch this film many other times. And I think it's because this movie is a conversion narrative in a way. It's a story about a guy like this is such a religious story. That first hour, you know, is very deliberate. I'm I'm saying that as like a synonym for slow, but I mean, I mean it in the sense of like, he's making very deliberate choices and he's going to pay all of them off later. And a big part, you know, it's, it's the classic thing of, I was in a really dark place. Then I found uh, I found God and I found this answer that propelled me forward. And then the rest of the movie is about how like you have to keep finding that voice. You have to keep finding uh, the religious experience and you have to not put your trust in other people as much as you have to put your trust in what you sense is your gut connection to sure. something holy and divine. And like, obviously this movie has a lot to say about a lot of things, but I think it's a really great movie about, what drives religious people in addition to everything else yeah i mean it's 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 very faith-based you know it's that idea of how where is your compass and how do you continue to find it which i which i agree with you i think is fascinating i i also think that you know part of the problem with your classical biopics is that they tend to be just greatest hits right it's like (laughs) so these are the things we have to hit and there are things that most people already know so, like, you're not really learning much about the person. Um, and I think that this film certainly has things it knows it has to hit. But again, part of that, the, the breadth of that three hours running time is it gives him the chance to dig deeper into what actually drove this person, like what made him um, the person that he was and, and what was so compelling about him that people followed him in the way that they did, um, which I think is so fundamental and i think that you know one of the things you know that that warner brothers said we want this film to be two hours and 20 minutes and he was like if it's two hours and 20 minutes it's going to be exactly what we were talking right it's just Mm going to be a a by the book biopic that just doesn't mean anything um and and i think that that's just part of the problem with biopics they're just generally speaking not particularly interesting structurally and otherwise and i think that the the richness in this is not just obviously in the technical and in the tremendous performances but i think it's in the the modus operandi of wanting to dig as deep into this man as is humanly possible i uh if i were warner brothers and which is to say if i were evil if i were evil um (laughs) the uh i would like i mean the obvious answer would be like we'll just chop off the first hour but like if you lose that first hour you know you lose you do lose his like childhood backstory that's paralleled so beautifully at the end but you also lose this element of you need to know who this guy was before you can see who he became and that's 
that's the thing most biopics just don't have. You know, you don't get a sense. You get a couple scenes when they were a kid, and then it's like, well, on to the next thing. And this movie no, for sure. lets you live in that world. It's a full movie unto itself. I also think, you know, and Aaron, I'm curious as to your thoughts on this, obviously, as well. But, like, I think this movie is shot out of a cannon. I think that first hour, the energy of that first hour, the propulsion of that, you know, that unbelievable dance sequence when they go to that dance together um you know th- them in the in the zoot suits running through the park and that amazing shot of him falling dead to camera um which is uh, which spike talks about being an homage to the billy wilder film Ace in the hole but like all of these things it's it's such a you know a, a potpourri of all of the influences that spike loves as well of like filmmaking that I think if you lost that first hour, first of all, to your point, Emily, you, you really wouldn't know how he became what he became, but it's also just, it's such a rich text that for, I mean, he literally, I looked at the, at the timestamp, he goes to jail at the hour mark. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. But like that first hour is just so rich and energetic and, and just filled with just, excitement that i think you need that for the remaining two and a half hours to work as well but what are your thoughts yeah no it's um emily made a good point earlier in that there there are definitely tent poles throughout the film that kind of let you know okay this sequence is over we're heading into a new sequence that could easily be broken up like in a modern day sense um you know i i find that as much as the film is about malcolm and Malcolm, to, to be fair, you know, when they talk about, you know, like some people are super photogenic, his life is just, and the way it's been laid out, and there have been debates about kind of like whether or not this was on purpose or not, the way he's relayed his life to, to Alex Haley and others, it is perfectly made, it is that redemption story, it's perfectly made, it's one of the few bios that when you look at it, it's like, oh yeah, completely get that story, even in like the sections that it's in, and um, you know, I, I tend to find as much as it is, it is it is about Malcolm and his journey and his arc, it is also in part about Spike's journey as a filmmaker. Yes. You know, so a lot of the early sequences, the music sequence, that's that Spike still hanging on to, like, he's always had a musical element about him that, that he enjoyed in his early films. I mean, school days had, like, three or four little musical sequences where people breaking out in the song and dance and, and all of that. It's funny because I definitely haven't seen that as much since the 90s. It's like that was at some point that was kind of phased out and Spike, you know, lost interest in, in trying that out. But between those aspects, a lot of his homages to filmmakers that he admired, um, of course, Spike's own flourishes, uh, the Terrace Blanchard, you know, score. And, and, and it's funny because a lot of times one of my knocks on Spike is that his jazz scores don't to me, always fit organically with the subject matter. Sure. But but here it's dead on. Like, the, the score is exactly what it should be. Um, even Spike's, you know, it's funny, because Emily had mentioned, you know, a scene where Malcolm is kind of getting advised by Betty on how to listen to women. I think part of that is very meta for Spike, or, you know, who has, if there is a glaring weakness in a lot of films, it's the portrayal of women and the voice of women. Totally. Um, you could say that she's advising Malcolm and Spike, you know, in a way, <laughs> um, of just listening a little bit more and kind of, you know, 
So I think, you know, it, it's interesting because there are many places here where I see, of course, Malcolm's shape and trajectory and, and arc, but I also see a maturing filmmaker in Spike um, and someone who's attempting and trying to do, you know, this is the biggest film up for him up until that time by far that he had ever attempted. He recognized that and seemed to also, you know, be very transparent about it. I I really like the way I, I one thing I love about Spike Lee is how um, conversant he is with film history. He like really is interested in, you know, having conversations with other movies across all of film history. And one thing I love about this movie is how the filmmaking style kind of subtly shifts as you're like moving through time. That or that first hour is very epic 40s 50s technicolor you know this oh, yeah. is big and bright and like a little bouncy and certainly even the crime elements are like there's there's that kind of just tinge of pulp to them and then you get into the prison and it's very sterile and gray and you're kind of in like the late 50s early 60s filmmaking style and then as it gets closer to the present it gets more and more um kinetic for lack of a better word it gets more interested in um you know montage in creating these like really um electrifying sequences that don't feel as wedded to like you know narrative chronology certainly certainly like they're happening you know in rough chronological order but you're not as like he's not taking as much time to set up okay here this is why malcolm's giving this speech this is why this is happening he's trusting you to keep up and so the movie like keeps like I, I, one thing I was thinking about with the the initial scenes of Malcolm and Betty falling in love is that every kind of movie you'd like to see is in here somewhere. Like you get a really nice ten minute romance in there, you get a musical in there, you get like a prison yeah. movie. It's so it's so well done. I guess you don't get yeah. a sci fi film, but that's the only. Yeah. I, I, you know, the other thing too to sort of piggyback on what you were saying, Emily, is that there's news footage starts to become. You know, right in sort of the when 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 Malcolm is at his most sort of uh, I don't want to say famous, but I guess maybe that's the right word. You're seeing a lot of news footage. You're seeing a lot of sort of historical component. You're seeing that that cross cutting with the JFK assassination footage. Um, you're you're seeing all that sort of you're 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 seeing the ascent of a historical figure at that point, and you're starting to really feel how much of a footprint he's leaving on history in that moment um you know and and there are little like i love the 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 joe lewis win um when joe lewis wins and there's that beautiful crane shot of that of just all the people in the streets dancing with the signs and i love that they only had one shot they only got one take of it and he kisses the girl the extra next to him who's completely just like <laughs> just so shocked that it happened and you can see how excited she is well yeah can, can we can we uh, also <laughs> let's remind you know everyone this is 1992 denzel so this is like sexiest man in the world denzel yep. you know this is like if you're an extra you got kissed by denzel that's like you're he's telling that story until she died <laughs> and and that scene you know it was shot on 125th street in front of the apollo so, theater no easy task to shut down that street, bring in period cars, yeah. have everyone in period dress. Yep. I I can't imagine the adrenaline that was running, you know, mm -hmm. that night to shoot that particular scene and have everyone hyped up. It's it's an incredible feat uh, when you think about it, and knowing that they had one take basically to do it. It's it's just like 
I can't even imagine what Spike must have been like at Video Village when he sees her kiss this woman. Like, seriously, dude? Like, you know? well, talk about something else, though, that current day that plays out very differently, you know? Yes, um, yes. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. She did not ask to be kissed in that moment. No, so, yes, there's no. definitely... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it, it it should be said too. You know, Denzel at this point is obviously you know he's a, he's a big actor, but this is sort of right. This is the moment when he becomes right, Denzel. I would say where he becomes one of the biggest stars in the world. Like I, right? I feel like prior to this, he had won you know supporting uh, actor Oscar for yeah. Glory. That was like nineteen eighty nine, three years prior. Um, he was obviously a thing because, you know, again, he's on the list of the sexiest man. And I think he won sexiest man right around this time. Mm -hmm. Not that that, you know, but as far as fame is concerned, that can be certainly a hallmark. Um, but, but I remember this being kind of the first prominent, um, you know, award, kind of the most, the first prominent critical, uh, darling, that placed mm-hmm. Denzel as the face of a movie. I mean, he he is the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after this is, you know, you you have a, he's he's a movie star. Like no, yeah, you know, it's he's bankable studio. I mean, in '93 he's in the Pelican Brief in Philadelphia. '95 he's in Crimson Tide, Devil in a Blue Dress. You know, it, it's it's. And, and, and at a certain point, you know, Bone Collector and Hurricane in 99. But then it's just like, he's a brand unto himself, right? Like, you know, yeah. if Denzel's in a movie, it's going to open. And it's incredible. And by the way, if you had to put out an audition movie that shows you can play different, yeah, different characters, like, this is it. You want a romantic <laughs> lead? You got the scenes with him and Betty. He's charming. Yeah. You know, he's, yeah. he's also seductive when he, when he needs to be. You want yep. action hero. He's got a little bit of that with the West Indian Archie, the, the kind sure, of the noir sure. kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you want uh, the guy who can play like leader, well-spoken, intelligent. That's yeah. all the Malcolm stuff. Every film that follows is like a shade of what he did in Malcolm X, like a, a sliver, <laughs> you know, each one That's of those. Films. That, um, yeah. uh, that period between glory and malcolm x where it feels like hollywood knows he's a star but isn't sure what to do with him he does he does mo better blues um he's the lead in that which he's very good in. he's also very good in the marinara film um mississippi masala where he's also the lead but it's very much like what do we do with he's in a comedy with bob hoskins i've never heard (laughs) of. yeah it does you know this was it feels as though so he does play malcolm x on the stage before this um in a play um, and he was apparently very good in that. And it, and it did seem as though, as you were alluding to earlier, Aaron, a Malcolm X movie is getting made. Someone's going to make it and how it's going to get made and who knows how good it's going to be, whatever. But everyone's like Denzel is playing Malcolm X. Like there's there's no director that is not sort of like, well, that's the guy. Like there's, and, and part of it is because he does look a little like Malcolm X. I mean, obviously his complexion is a little bit different. He's a little shorter than him by about three inches or something like that. But there is a little bit of shades of Malcolm in, in the way he looks, but he's also like, there's just no question that he's the guy, right? Like, as you're saying, Emily, everyone in Hollywood is sort of looking at this guy and saying like, he's going to be something like, we know that this is, it's, it's a matter of, you know, what's the project that, that really kind of puts him on that next pedestal. And it just, to your point, Aaron, it's this one. How can it not be? 
have you ever seen his work in St. Elsewhere? Um, yeah, he's great in St. Elsewhere. He's so good in that. And it's just like, he's is he like the biggest movie star to come out of TV? Because he got a lot of these roles because he was so good on St. Elsewhere. He has to be, right? I think, I mean, yeah, it's him or Clooney, I guess, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know that there's anyone else. Yeah, really. and I, I'm a fan of both, but I, I'd say Denzel hands down. <laughs> yeah, uh, mainly because, you know, Clooney got started a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and also kind of occupied, I think, more of a kind of specialized um, lane, you know. Um, Denzel carried franchises, you know, oh, yeah. the Equalizer, you know, Denzel's done, you know, the Tony Scott films with the, the gritty action, Denzel's done well-respected dramas, yeah, I mean, yeah. and he's done play, you know. He's, he's, um, Booney, I think, was, was kind of an I- iconic figure, you know, in that he's, yeah. you know, kind of is what he is just being Clooney, the cool guy that you want to hang out with and yep you might even buy casamigos if you're you know <laughs> if you're really into them. um i mean i think that you know it's interesting a perform uh, denzel in macbeth in joel cohen's macbeth that came out a few years ago um is incredible in that movie i mean to your point he can do shakespeare or he can do man on fire. Like the, the, the guy really can kind of do anything. Um, yeah. Here's what's funny about it. He can make man on fire and equalizer feel elevated because yes. he's doing it. Yes. You know, like anyone else who's in the equalizer yeah. or man on fire, you're kind of going, okay, it's a B movie, movie thriller. Uh, you know, it'll be enjoyable. When Denzel does it, you, you feel a poignancy to it because he's doing it. <laughs> He's like in an unstoppable train movie and somehow it's making right. it seem like it's, it's high right. art. <laughs> it, it, in, in retrospect, it makes me kind of like do a double take at some of the early choices he had. He did a movie with Russell Crowe that I think both of them, they swept under the rug, I think both of them. <laughs> but but because Denzel's in it, it, it makes me stop for a second and go, wait a second, did I unfairly judge this film? Then you then you see it and you're like, no, nah, I didn't, I yeah, didn't. But because it's Denzel, yeah. for a second, you know, makes you want to at least check it out. And that's that's movie star, you know. That's absolutely, absolutely. So, I, I yeah, uh, suddenly, sorry, go I ahead. just I just looked up the premise of this Bob Hoskins movie, and it's about <laughs> it's about a racist cop who receives a heart transplant. A heart from, condition? Is that what this is called? Yeah, yeah from a condition. black from like a black murder victim. Yeah. And it looks like maybe he gets haunted by the ghost of Denzel throughout to solve the murder. And yeah. I'm just like, that sounds like the worst movie ever, but Denzel's yeah. in it. So maybe <laughs> it might be charming. I don't know. I think even Denzel, you know, Denzel's very diplomatic and and Denzel's also I think been very smart. One of the few movie stars we have left you got tom cruise of course and sure. and denzel and you know maybe a couple others but he's always been very diplomatic when talking about heart condition i, I find which is oh, an really? old school trait you know he's not one to i right. i've never heard him take a shit on any film he's done yeah. but the the closest he'll come is you know kind of talk about films you learn from learn lessons <laughs> from and and um and coming off of saying elsewhere or, or i can't remember if it was coming off or like while he was still on it you know it's that awkward time of like you want to do films but what are the films that are available he plays literally a magical negro ghost it's you know it's, it's not it's great one of those, it's like it's the entryway so he can get on to other things mm-hmm. um but it's also the type of film that i don't know if that gets made now he would get blasted you know so hard on social media for even attempting that 
Um, but at the time, I think there was like 10 of those in, does, in the 80s. Yeah. Does he do a lot of comedy? It doesn't seem to me like he does, but like he, much ado about nothing, he's very funny. And like that's a very Preacher's wife film. is kind of yeah. charming. It's mm-hmm. kind of a comedy ish. Yeah. He's not like doing raucous comedy. No. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he, the thing is, he does seem funny. And by the way, mm-hmm. to, your, to your point, Aaron, like whenever he's doing interviews, he seems very genuine. He seems like he seems like a he seems kind of like a dad. You know what I mean? Like he's just got that kind of energy. Um, he seems very funny when he wants to be telling stories about his own life and what have you. I also love the fact that like Denzel's mom is in this movie. She plays the mother of uh, Laura. When he drops her off, she's the one in the in the doorway, like you know good night mrs johnson whatever he says yeah. Yeah. and she's giving him the stink eye it's great um I, you know his son is in this john david yeah. washington is in this as well there's there's just a lot of he's he seems like a real family man he seems like it's very that that's very important to him he's been with his wife forever as far as i can tell um i i think that he's just he just seems like a very affable guy who loves that he gets to do what he gets to do um which i think is really special you know i i think too you know so the delroy lindo role which i didn't know originally spike wanted samuel jackson to play that role which i think would have been interesting um might have been great i I don't know um but delroy lindo who's so good in this movie and then is so good in crooklyn the the next film that that spike does and he's incredible in defy bloods and i can't believe it was nominated for that I mean, just a tremendous actor. Um, and I think it's interesting how he... So there's that scene, the last scene with with uh, West Indian Archie where he's in sort of this flop house and he's had some sort of a stroke or some sort of you know medical malady of some sort. Um, and I guess they had to shoot that really quickly because Delroy had to get out of town to do reshoots on some other movie that he was doing. So they literally had to shoot it quite fast. And in the, in the script, it says something like, West Indian Archie is dying. Like there's just, there's no real like explanation. So Spike just says like, do whatever you want to do. And Delroy creates this sort of, you know, this uh, stroke, I, what have I, you. I, yeah. I, I think is, <laughs> I find it fantastic. I like it's fantastic. not the right word, but yeah. I'm just, I'm always blown away by, you know, by what Delroy does with the limited screen time he has in this film. I've never been more impressed by him on the screen as I am with him doing West Indian Archie. It's, it's interesting. There's a lot of, you know, what ifs regarding kind of like, you know, different actors maybe playing a role or not playing a role. And I think this is at a time where Sam was dealing with some very tough personal stuff. Um and there's, you know, I think well documenting and, you know, very deep reasons why he couldn't, you know, do the role, which, by the way, like there's a separate universe where I'm still missing like a, a really great run of like Samuel Jackson Denzel scenes. I just think yeah. that would be awesome to have at some yeah. point. But Delroy kills this. You know, there's a stature about him and a style. There's a height to him, a physical height that then, you know, he's one of the few actors that Denzel's looking up to literally. Mm-hmm. When he's sharp, like he feels like he's the man. He, he's in, you know, he really is in command of those scenes. And in that scene that you're talking about, when, when Denzel goes to talk to him, the physical transformation, yeah. I'm, I'm just always, you know, what he did with that just, you know, it just always kind of blows me away. There's a superficial element to this, too. I'm a sports fan. Whenever I see Delroy at this age, 
he and LeBron James remind me of each other just a little bit, yeah. a little bit. Their stature, you know, just the way he carries himself. But the range that he shows, I felt like, again, in the same way that Malcolm's arc is very distinct, West End Indian Archie's arc is very distinct yes. as well. And supporting, you know, for supporting actor in this movie, I, I really wish that at the time we were better equipped to recognize them for that. Um, you know, and I, I think people do now more, you know, like now you kind of recognize, you know, a little bit more of what he did. But I remember seeing that in the theater and going like, I don't think I was even familiar with who Delroy was before I saw the movie. And then, you know, that's where I started to really kind of look back on what else has he been in? Because that, that is fantastic. He's one of the few actors that when he's in a scene with Denzel, yeah. he's more than holding his own. You know, he's he is commanding well, everything. He, and he's he's genuinely scary in the film as well. There's that amazing scene where Denzel basically lies and says he got the numbers wrong. Um, and he gives him the money and it's the beginning of the fracture of their relationship. It essentially falls apart from that point on. And the fact that at the last scene they have together, Delroy's like, did you have those numbers? Yeah. Like he's yeah. still holding yeah, on like to the, that shit. The, the rep at the end of the day, the rep <laughs> is just so important. And and the funny thing is, like that's one of the few scenes where I kind of almost expect Malcolm, Denzel's Malcolm to crack. Because it's like, no, he still is like very much in monk mode, but it's like you gotta be wondering, like, dude, give it up, come on, you know. <laughs> that's i never i didn't think about that that there is still, i mean detroit red's still there right like he's yeah. deep deep down but he's still in there and malcolm's not gonna say he didn't have the numbers uh, the only time he he starts to give a little mm. bit of detroit red is mm. they're in the diner at one point and uh the guys are a little bit impatient this is after they did the epic uh hospital walk where like all of the guys are that's in good. step but they're in a diner afterwards and the guys are a little impatient. They want to do more for society and want to like, you know, really get out there. And, and uh, Malcolm raises his voice for a second. And then he catches himself because he catches, you know, that destroyed red anger coming out. And Malcolm is now, you know, again, very monk-like in that he's, he's um, very, you know, trying to keep things under control. And it's funny, I think that's even a line in the movie, right? Is when the FBI is surveilling him during that period of the film where we're, we're very much it's, uh, voyeuristic and kind of the way we're looking at things, uh, where they, controversial statement, of course, but they, they compare him to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King by saying, you know, compared to King, this guy's a monk. I think that idea of being a monk and keeping things reserved, um, you know, obviously a very conscious choice, not only by the film, but Denzel in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think, too, it should be said, you know, there's there's a, there's a pretty large swath of this film that takes place in jail. I'd say it's probably about I don't know, 20 minutes to a half an hour, maybe something in that vicinity. And, you know, that in and of itself could have been tropey, right? Like, we've seen so many movies about people in jail. And, you know, when we did our 99 podcast, we talked about The Hurricane, which is a film that very much is trafficking in a lot of those tropes to a to, you know, pretty large degree. And, and this movie feels just different to me in the way that it handles the, the the sort of prison experience because it's very much sort of about being inside his head and less about the actual sort of you know bureaucracy of, of, of a prison but the scene that always stays with me is the dictionary scene um, when when Barnes sits him down 
and says, look up the deck, the dictionary definition of black. And then, which is this, you know, soiled and awful depiction of just, you know, utter evil and all of that. And then you look up white and it's purity and all the things. And Dan's was like, wait a sec, who, who wrote this book? Like, what, 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 like, and, and there is just something very sort of, I, I mean, it's, it's so binary, right? Like it's, it's a dictionary. It's, it's, it's literally where we go for definitions of words and, even this book is is soiled. Even this book is filled with lies. It's, yeah, it's I, I think it goes back to to that that opening shot of the film where Spike is laying out like the very foundations, the things we take for granted, things you pass by every day. They're all yeah. rooted in this idea, you know, of a world order that's been built on white supremacy. You know, European yeah. values, even the standards of beauty. When he goes to you know to conk his hair. Yeah. And this debate has been had a million times, billion times over the years, uh, mostly regarding women and their hair, like hair straighteners sure. and what's the purpose and what's the value. And But that idea of kind of a, a white standard, not just the standard of beauty, but also, you know, kind of the, the vocabulary that we use, you know, the religious basis that we tend to operate on, almost everything. Um, Baines is encouraging him to look at the roots of all of these things and question the things that you've learned that you've been encouraged to, to never question. Um, and to kind of really kind of look at exactly how everything is defined, you know? So it, it is interesting in that, um, I think that part portion of the movie does a really good job in showing exactly how, and that's why the first part of the movie is so important, yeah. but how a guy who was so caught up in just the day to day, you know, how do I make a buck? How do I, you know, in, engage my senses as much as possible and live a life where I'm enjoying whatever, whatever? To a guy who's now having to question everything, you know, there have been movies about kind of rehabilitation um, and movies about people kind of changing their lives, but that that middle section does as good a job as any to show how you're, you know, how one one thinking shifts, how you have a religious experience. Um, even when it's not religious, you know, it's, yep. it's still kind of questioning everything you've come to take for granted. Um, you know, I love that, uh, in several scenes afterward, you see Malcolm reading the dictionary. It's just yeah. like a great touch. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I also think it, it, it brought something to mind that I think is interesting. Um, Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's personified in a person, 
for him, right? Like it's personified in Elijah. Um, and when he, that first scene, when he meets him, um, Denzel's body language, the way he's sort of hunched, the, 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 the tears, the truly feeling as though he's unworthy of being in a room with, with this individual. Um, and, and how that, I don't want to say it leads to his downfall necessarily, but, but, but the fact that he's unable to see any flaws in Elijah because of the fact that he saved his life. Um, you know, it's, it's different than putting all your faith in, you know, some amorphous God that isn't a person and just sort of saying like, this is a thing that I believe in. He's believing in a person and a person can, and most likely is flawed, right? They are human. They are going to make mistakes. Um, and that sort of dissonance, I think is really kind of fascinating in the way that they mm. explore that. Um, and, and how obviously the, 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 fracture between his relationship with elijah is what ultimately leads to his you know assassination but it is it's just very interesting to see um religion personified in a human form i guess is what i'm getting at because i don't you don't see that i guess you do have the dalai lama and you do have various figures but it, it was just kind of interesting yeah I, you know it's i you know it's kind of that um that element of Obviously, you know, Malcolm finding these series of mentors and and Elijah Muhammad becoming the ultimate, I think it also harkens back in a way to his his father as well, Malcolm's father, uh, who was a kind of a disciple of Marcus Garvey, who, you know, in the early turn of the century was basically as close to Elijah Muhammad figure as you can get. He wasn't religious, but he was a pan um He's an African, pan-African nationalist okay. who had very strong views. But his father was a, you know, a loyal kind of like, you know, at least um, disciple of, of that, you know, form of thinking. You know, there's ser several times where it's mentioned in the film that, you know, the, the sense is that Black people are lost in kind of the wilderness of North America. And for those that do feel that way, to have anyone who seems like they have figured it out, you know, or have any sense of self. Sure. I think that sequence shows how intoxicating that can be uh, yeah. for those who are lost, you know, or feel lost. Um, and, you know, there are times where, you know, Spike's overt in certain statements where Malcolm literally says, you know, I don't know who I am, you know, when they're in prison and he's been broken down and he's been asked very tough questions. He's right in a way for a figure, mm -hmm. you know, who seems to have the answers to be, you know, the person that he puts his trust in. And then, like we said, I think one of the the triumphs of the film and one of the triumphs and tragedies of Malcolm's life is that when he graduated to the point where he started to figure out kind of his own way of going about these things of who he really is, is right when he gets cut down. Um, it's, you know, I, I you're sort of talking about the intoxication of leadership, which I think also plays into Malcolm as a human, right? Which he, he then starts to realize he has the power to, to wield in his own way. Um, and that March that you talk about when they're marching to the hospital because of one of the people that have been injured, um, you really do have just this, it's a moment when you see the awesomeness of Malcolm, right? Where you're just like, people are just 
walking out of restaurants and and diners and just just to follow this man um and the score is just fucking just you know it's just kicking at that moment and i'm just like terrence blanchard's second movie score just unbelievable but like it's just and the way it's shot and just that feeling of the the and then obviously peter boyle is that cop who just says that's way yeah. too much power for one man to have it's it's just it's amazing it's just so by, by the way this is one of the movies i have to say the, the random kind of like guest star moments <laughs> peter boyle's in it for one scene you're like wait a second that's peter boyle <laughs> yeah. karen allen you know yes. um yes. From so Indiana good. Jones is in yeah. like one scene, and and it's yeah. so funny because I felt conflicted when I first saw that because I was like, <laughs> I like Marion from Indiana Jones, but I don't like her in this scene, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. But very yeah. likable actress normally, so yeah. Spike did that quite a bit. Like there's um, yeah. there's all these like really great. A lot of you know New York actors that that Spike you know has known and have been in his orbit, but like it's incredible. And imagining too that I'm sure all of them did Spike a favor. They didn't have money to pay everybody's quote, I'm sure. Sure. But to see the collection of talent who believed either in Spike or the vision or both mm-hmm. um, is a testament to itself. You know, so, um, every Absolutely. little part in this is played by someone, some actor of. Yeah. you know, of, uh, of some renown who's, who's done some great things elsewhere. So, um, yeah, that, I mean, that sequence though is, is, is full of that. It's just the best. And, and like, I mean, you talk about people, uh, not getting paid their, 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 you know, quotes. I mean, Denzel didn't get paid. <laughs> he gave his salary back to the film. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, this was definitely a collective, right? Everyone was just like, we have got to get this thing over the, uh, over the finish line. I, you know, I, I think that, um, the uh it's interesting because emily the scene you were referring to the sort of the 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 quote-unquote big fight between betty and malcolm um so malcolm's wife claims that they never had this fight but it's in the autobiography that malcolm wrote so i mean you can have however you want to choose this um I, I I am led to believe that some sort of discussion happened between the two of them that revolved around um, the idea of him providing for his family and that this nation of Islam is making all of this money off of Malcolm and he is not seeing what he should see off of his fame and, and of the, these speeches and what have you, which seems like a reasonable thing. It doesn't seem unreasonable for Betty to be asking for this. And also that he's ignoring these yeah. things that are in the press that he, yeah. you know, that she like, I do think there's this thing where, where women will hear something like what those women said about Elijah Muhammad and be like, mm, yeah. But also like, I think what's yeah. fascinating about this is that Malcolm does eventually get to the place where he breaks with his leader yes. and how, how many people have a leader religious or political who they like will learn they've done something terrible and just will not, you know, will not break because it's so hard. You've built your whole belief system around this thing. And then to like, be like, well, they were, you know, we're all flawed. We're all human. But like, you know, once the second you set yourself up as being essentially a messenger from God, like you have a like higher standard you have to live by. That's well, that's my it, take. I also feel like it's probably harder to get canceled <laughs> at that level too. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, 
Muhammad Elijah having these accusations made about him and then having Malcolm go to see these women and meet these children and have these discussions about, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to refute that this is what transpired in some form or another. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's the, it's the break for him, I think. It remains a hot button topic to this day. Um, and, and in all fairness, yeah. You know, I'm not sure that, you know, we've had the the as high profile a rebuttal, if you will. Um sure. but certainly like when we talk about the ingredients for ultimate betrayal and blind loyalty, they were they they were there, you know, in, in the case sure. of, of Malcolm and and certainly Elijah Muhammad. And I would say, you know, humankind has kind of been right. It's not unusual that a man in power would yeah. somehow abuse that power yeah. in and oftentimes um you know inappropriate ways um and especially when it comes to to sex in particular he, mm-hmm. he would not be the first you know not by a long shot of course and so that's that's where it's like you know it's it's probably not too hard to believe and then in regards to married couples having that debate. I mean, they talk about what's what's the number one thing that married couples tend to debate at all is money and sure. respect and, you know, balance of uh, responsibilities. This seems to be all the things that they're talking about in that scene. The idea that they never debated any of those things, with all due respect to the late, you know, Betty Shabazz, is like, you know, that some of that may be also trying to protect sure. your own, you know, portrayal. So, when you know, I do wonder as well if sort of the confluence, certainly narratively, the confluence of these accusations and Malcolm going to Mecca feels like the thing that takes him out of the nation of Islam to some degree or another, right? Of that of that organization and wanting to create his his own organization. Um, the Mecca sequence, which if Spike is to be believed, and I would say he is, Warner Brothers wanted to shoot on the beach of New Jersey. Um, Listen, I've been to Jersey, and if you're, there's one place that looks like Saudi Arabia in the United States of America, it's New Jersey. Um, Doesn't so, that seem like the, the most Warner Brothers thing to do, though? It's like of all places, Jersey. That's your spot. That's the holy of holies. It's unbelievable, it's but yeah. He is able to film in Mecca, um, the only narrative film, not documentary, to shoot at Mecca, second unit photography, um, a, a visually and emotionally powerful sequence in the film. Um, the sheer scope of it, that, that's kind of when the movie just really blows out and you're just like, this is... Um, because we've been in Boston and New York or the, the confines of sort of, you know, big sort of densely populated cities. And then all of a sudden you're back at theoretically, depending on your belief system, where it all began. Um, it does feel very, um, you feel the power of it and you're seeing Malcolm, uh, you know, share food and drink with white people. Um, and you're starting to get a sense that his, purview is expanding and that he's starting to see the world through a very different set of eyes which is really powerful yeah my understanding too is uh, you know because i i don't know that it, uh, even at the time such a big deal that a filmmaker was allowed to do that yeah um yeah. to go yeah. and film there 
you know, Denzel was so much in character that, you know, it's not as though people around him were aware that they're shooting a movie and that he's playing Malcolm X. Like these, he's actually interacting with people. He's, he's done, you know, he's done his homework as far as, you know, exactly how to, how to conduct the, the prayers. Um, that, that in itself, there's so many different feats that were just incredible as far as physical, literal filmmaking. Um, that was a sequence where I felt like it takes it to more of that level of kind of Lawrence of Arabia, where, you know, you're obviously like, this is on a scope and a level that mm-hmm. Mike's never done. And, and a black bio has never achieved is, yeah, this is now international worldwide. And in a place where I don't know that more than a handful of filmmakers, maybe even less could have pulled off. Um, but Spike did, you know, so it's, that's you know incredible it also feels like you know taking the whole new jersey component out of it for a second you just have to kind of say to yourself that you imagine that they wanted this to just not be as big a you know i mean a shorter portion of the film it's where they would have truncated it's it's a turning point in, in his life but i think that they just didn't I just don't think they ever saw the scope of this movie in the same way. Like, I just don't think they saw this movie as being as sort of momentous and huge, but you know, I think uh, they saw, a, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. No, it's a, it's a force of nature for sure. And, and, and also what I will say about that sequence that I do, you know, think it makes, uh, makes it, um, you know, mandatory really is it took this idea for those who have an idea of what the Islam religion is, I felt like that was a sequence that really not only blows up the film, but also blows up the religion and the faith to have an understanding yeah. that there's a much larger, you know, aspect of this than just the sect that Malcolm was in initially. Mm-hmm. I think that Warner Brothers saw how many copies the autobiography had sold and were like, hey, there's people who are interested in this story, but they were very much like, you know the the a this kind of movie by which i mean the big biopic was no longer really being made or funded at that level at this mm-hmm. time and and b this is a period in time when you know the not that it's not true now is still as well but where like the white perspective on society was still sure. such an overriding one such a dominant one and i think that you know the studio executives were like yeah there's money to be made here if we can make this for 15 million dollars or something but if you want to make this movie as good as it can be you need arguably more money than spike lee had like he uh really pinched every penny and really uh came up with something wonderful but you know he should have 50 million he could have yeah i mean it's i i i didn't do the the context up top but i'll just say that this film did come out november 18th 1992 it was up against home alone 2 <laughs> prince hey. Rooker's dracula uh passenger 57 a river runs through it and the mighty ducks it would go on to make 73 million dollars on a 45 million dollar budget um you know, it's it's 89% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, 91 from audiences. In 2010, it was received preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. I, I, I say all of this, Emily, just because I think that, you know, he makes that $45 million really, you know, go. Like, the, yeah. it, it looks unbelievable for, for the amount of money they were given. But I agree with you, Emily. I think that, I think he probably... Yeah, 
deserved you, more but you know you know how people are doing the, the barbie oppenheimer uh mm-hmm. double double sure. features i think in 1992 doing a home alone 2 malcolm x <laughs> <double> feature <laughs> like that that sounds great <laughs> what a cohesive day at the film movie because <laughs> I, I, uh, I think home alone 2 was lost in new york Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also featured a cameo by uh, by one Donald Trump. Yep. That's, <laughs> that's a very different portrayal of New York. I will say that. So, Aaron, uh, just speaking of, do you remember where you saw this movie? Do you remember the theater? Uh, I saw it twice within one week. Um, I remember I was growing up in Kansas City. I saw initially I saw the film at a theater that does not exist anymore. That a, a mall. It was at the Black Mall, basically in my city, <laughs> okay. Indian Springs. And that was a must where I needed to see it with a, a black audience. Sure. And then the second time I saw it, uh, my family is a tradition where on Thanksgiving week, um, so it was a couple a couple weeks mm-hmm. later. Um, Thanksgiving week, we all tend to go out and watch the movie. And I remember sure. going in Lawrence, Kansas, with my entire family. And uh, and we watched it um, awesome. then. And Lawrence is uh, just so you know, it's a traditional college town, probably seventy percent white. Um, okay. So it's like my family and like white people from Kansas who are in that theater, and okay. so that's a di- that's a different experience. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm curious, what were the theater experiences like? Like, how did it feel in the theater? Were they, I'm assuming, different vibes? <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time watching it, you know, I was one of those kids that skipped, yep. you know, class. We coordinated it, like, for a week. <laughs> like, we're going to be gone this day. We're all going together. We're going to go check out this movie. Um, and because I had seen it with peers, seeing it with peers and seeing it with high school peers in particular, you know, we're all hyped coming out of there. We're we're thinking like fight the power, and you know, like it really did springboard me. You know, this is this is also the year where like I had discovered filmmaking. You know, like I made my first films that that same year. My first films were about like racial injustice in my school. Like that's how I started. You know what I mean? I had friends of mine who were like trying to be like, again, Soderbergh or Paul Thomas Anderson or whatever. And I'm like making films about like racial injustice in high school. Right, um, right, right. That's in no small measure based on like being influenced by this film. I went out after seeing Malcolm X and I already told you about the, you know, the one sheet that I copied. Sure. I also went out and bought a zoot suit. I bought a zoo suit or as close to a zoo suit as I could find. That was like a, it was like, if there is such a thing as a conservative zoo suit, it was like a black and white. So it wasn't like purple or like, you know, but it was, it was definitely like an oversized like suit. And I wore that to the first screening of a film that I made that year. The first, that's awesome. uh, The first major film that I made by the, by that spring, I was wearing a zoo suit in a premiere for my movie. That was about like racial. I love that. Racial of disparities in my high school. So all of that, you know, those are all ripple mm. effects. It really, sure. it was a, it was a real launching pad. I know for me, it was, it was a moment where there was a, a minute where when that movie came out and that was back when, you know, everything was on VHS and the longer movies, they would do like two VHS yep. tapes inside yep. one box. I had that one. It was the most worn out that I had. The box was like falling apart after a while. I used to watch that movie at least at least once a week and we're talking about a three-hour movie can so, i ask a question so, this is a this might seem like a weird question but wh- where was the break in between the two tapes do you remember yeah um 
from what I remember, it was right. It was um, that's back when they they were a little bit arbitrary. Now they would break it yeah. about on time. They there wasn't an artistry to the break <laughs> yeah, to the VHS. Yeah. So uh, it was it broke right um, as he was leaving prison. It was like um, okay, he was in the barber chair getting the hair cut off. Yeah. He had sent letters to old colleagues about his yeah. conversion, and people thought he was nuts. Yeah, and and it was over like basically his prison was ending, and then you would pick up the second uh, portion um, with him going to meet. Elijah Muhammad, Elijah. and and then it's the, like it's the ride yeah. of like this is the rise of Malcolm X, sure, and then the betrayal, yeah. yeah. The uh, that was I was thinking about if you were going to do an intermission for this film, which is just shy of needing to have one, uh, that would be a place you could put it. Or after Peter Boyle says, "No one man yep. should have all like that's yep. that's also a really good um, yep uh, sort of yeah. break point breaking point. Yeah. It's it's just funny because I I I remember the double cassettes. There were many of them. Um, I remember Titanic was a big one. Uh, I, you know what I mean? There were just sort of, and and always kind of knowing where you had to switch the tape. And it, it's weirdly like this point in certain films, obviously they don't break them anymore, but my brain still stops at certain points. I was like, this is where we're supposed to switch the tapes. But it, I just think that's, um, but I, I do want to talk about the, the end of this film. Um, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come. Um, one of the best needle drops that's ever been. Yeah. Um, it's, it is, I, I mean, I don't, I think Spike Lee's a tremendous filmmaker. There's lots of movies of his that I love. There's lots of sequences that I love, but this portion of the film is just, I, I would argue his towering achievement at this point. Like it's still the it, thing that just, it's just lightning in a bottle. You know, he, <laughs> He everything about that sequence. First of all, he and you know a lot of times Spike will insert his Spike shot, the floating uh, individual. The dolly. Yeah. yeah, the double dolly shot that he loves. Sometimes you know he'll have it in films where it's just like, okay, you're just doing it here because you feel like you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. The Malcolm X version of it though was was organic and perfect for where it was. The feeling that Malcolm had of a sense of like his days are numbered there's a weightlessness to him he knows that like every word that he says will matter there's a weight to it all using that shot with that song and the imagery that goes along with the rhythm of the song the cop car the reflection of the cop car passing his window as he's sitting in the car contemplating what his speech is about to be the woman, the little the, the the little lady who stops him to to wish him well, and to to remind him that Jesus will you know I think this Jesus will take care of you is yeah. something like that, and kind of the humor and irony of him hearing that and yeah. her not knowing like who she's necessarily speaking oh, to about it. Yeah. It's it there's it's the emotions involved in a sequence that has as minimal dialogue I think is as good as anything. Um, Spike is done. Spike talked about in the documentary that I watched. It was inspired by Godfather Part Two to some degree or another. Um, the 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 shot of the guys in the car, the assassins in the car, the shot of uh, Angela Bassett in the back seat with the kids. Also, the, 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 you are watching fate barreling towards each other with this unbelievable song playing in the background. Um, 
Spike says something that really made me laugh in the documentary, which is that he spoke to, obviously to Betty, about theoretically what she thought Malcolm's headspace was on this day. She believes that he knew he was going to be assassinated, whether or not on that day or at some point in the near future, he has sort of resigned himself to that fact. Um, she said that he wanted to be a martyr to some degree or that his death would be used as as something to help their cause. Um, and Spike said, I'm quoting him, once we knew that Malcolm knew he was going to die, I turned to Ernest and said, we got to put Denzel's ass on that doll. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good choice. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's an inspired choice. By the way, an, another element in that sequence where we're talking about like actors who came in to do bit, bit parts, Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah. Is in that that sequence where he picks up the, the doll, you know Ma yeah. Malcolm's doll or Ma Malcolm's daughter drops the doll. He picks yeah. it up and smiles at her, and then um, his face just goes like fucking dark. That's it's crazy. So Gus Spring, Gus Spring, way <laughs> before, way before Gus Spring. That's no, the first time I, you know, prior to that he had always played kind of roles in Spike's films that were sure. more energetic and you know you do the right thing. He was, He's very energetic. <laughs> Yeah, but this this was there was a cold bloodedness to this yeah. where he's yeah. switching on the charm and switching it off. Where it's like, okay, Amazing. note to self, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be able to do that for the next thirty years. That right there, what he just did. I uh, Wendell Pierce is in this movie. Yes. Every time I see young Wendell Pierce, I'm like, oh, you haven't just always been forty five. Because he just <laughs> always felt like that's just like that's he has that yeah. world weariness to him even as yeah. a young man. And you're like, yeah. mm -hmm. I you know, I I don't think that I noticed until this watch that Wendell is in an earlier scene saying, get your hand out of my pocket. Um, and then it's called back to that at the end of the film, which sort of gets starts the commotion that then leads to the assassination. Um it, it's and and it seems so antithetical to Wendell Pierce, right? Like I, I he he like he seems he's always played nice guys is ultimately what I'm getting at. And he's playing there's like this this darkness and this like anger um, that he just exudes without even saying lines of dialogue in this film. That's just really scary. Yeah, um, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, go ahead, sir. No, it's just you know I I think Spike seemed to make a very deliberate choice in who the the faces of these guys should be and none of them i think are readily like obvious being kind of monsters they they all look like guys that you would pass in the street and i think that was you know obviously uh deliberate i also wonder i've, I've never heard Wendell talk about it but i'd love to know from him because he then went on to play a series of roles of characters that for the most part you respect and trust i, I wonder how much of an impact this role had on it because i haven't seen him play whereas giancarlo's kind of i think gotten progressively darker in the roles he's played mm -hmm. um i feel like window's gone back to it's almost a surprise now again when you look back on it it's like wait a minute was that yeah Wendell pierce is like one of the assassins um that you know i would love to to, to just hear his point of view on it it reminds me too of I remember one of my earliest memories of being introduced to Malcolm X, even before I had read his biography, because I remember as a small kid running across a documentary on PBS, mm -hmm. and, um, and two of the things that stood out: first of all, this idea of a black man in the '60s who was talking a lot of, you know, talk speaking his mind, you know, sure. about 
that blew my mind as a little kid. But also this idea that that same man was shot 16 times while he was giving a speech as a little kid, that blew my mind as well. That terrified me in a way where I felt like, what can you possibly say that would get you shot 16 times in front of your family? Um, so whenever I see this sequence, I always, you know, keep in mind, it's like, you know, there's, there's, that was very much, to say the least, a statement that was, that his killers were, were making, um, you know, that still to this day kind of hits home. The fact that it happened in front of his wife and kids, um, I don't, I don't think it's talked about enough. He was such an iconic figure for the world, but you know, you have kids that are there that that's one of the memories that they still are left with is, um, you know, his, his murder. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, the actual assassination in the film, what's interesting is the slight smile that Denzel gives right before he's shot. Um, this sort of knowing almost welcoming this situation to some degree or another, like just, you know, um, and it's so subtle and it's, it's there for only a a fraction of a second. Um, It's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a really obviously horrific sequence, Um, but it's also shot quite matter of factly. You know what I mean? In in the sense that like, it's, it it is not, um, I don't know. There's it's, it's allowed to play out if that makes sense, as opposed to sort of making it seem cinematic. It's um, yeah. It's so chaotic. It perfectly, it captures that sense of you are in a place and something bad is happening and nobody knows what to do. And the chaos is just because after he's shot it, it's it, you know, that moment, that little smile of his is like the last moment. It feels like, a movie if that makes yeah. sense now it kind of totally. kind of feels like you're being plunged into just a documentary of what's happening just this utter chaos yeah and yeah, i would say that, that that feeling kind of carries on through the the end of the film that yes. that sense of like you know we're kind of in modern times i think at that point where you feel like the filmmaking style shifts to more modern handheld yes, yes. you know visceral chaos is a, is a good word for it um and and certainly like you know that decision to kind of put you in the in the seat literally to kind of get a sense of what it might have been like we shift from Malcolm's point of view basically to a sense of like the reaction of the yeah. world um and that was you know it was very effective and that's at some point it's like at that point i think we stopped seeing Denzel, I think the last yes. shot with him is when Angela Bassett's cradling his body and Correct. then it's all Correct. Malcolm X footage which is uh, yes. a, a great choice there's a shot a little bit earlier i wanted to to call out please in yeah. the, um uh, first of all the the shot in the prison that's just lit with the top and the the bottom lights coming in through the door and I, he's locked in by himself it's solitary is, yeah. yeah is so and you can you just sort of see his silhouette like rolling mm-hmm. around in front of that light it's so beautiful but uh i specifically wanted to call out when he's on his way to uh the audubon ballroom um, where he's assassinated there's this shot of him driving and it's I'm sure it's rear projection but this car comes up out of focus alongside him and there's like a person driving it and the person looks over at him and looks at him for a long time then looks away and then looks back and looks at him for a long time again and you're just like 
is this the FBI? Is this the CIA? Is this just somebody who recognized Malcolm X and was like, whoa, that's Malcolm X. Like, you know, any one of us would do like it. It's so, it's so good at capturing it, putting you in that paranoid headspace, that headspace of like, yeah, I'm probably going to die. And, and I think that's, yeah. uh, Everything about the last half hour of this movie is like, even when I feel like Spike Lee's going to layer it on just a little too thick. He finds a way to like, like there's a bunch of kids that say I am Malcolm X, which shouldn't work, but like it, then he transitions it to a bunch of South African kids. And then Nelson Mandela is, is addressing them. And you're like, this shouldn't work, but it's capturing the way this is a global struggle. This is not just, you know, as much as we're engaged with in the U S and as much as we should be with our, our, our racist history um, and present, like it's happening everywhere. And this is a conversation yeah. that needs to be had everywhere. And and Malcolm X is not just a symbol for this country. And like, so every time you, I think he's, you know, here's a little old lady who's coming to talk to Malcolm about how she finds him <laughs> inspiring. And then the end line of that conversation is Jesus looking out for you. It's just like every choice he makes that seems like it should backfire. He finds a way to save. I, I can't, I can't believe it. I'm it's astonishing. I- you know, you're tapping into something is that I was thinking about as well as I was watching this film. You know, Spike lives in this rarefied air of tone, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of the theatricality that he tends to inject into his films. You know, Aaron, you were, you alluded to it with the jazz scores that are always mixed a touch too loudly, not too loudly, but just like louder than you're used to hearing. Um, there, there is just sort of this general, and and I would also argue in Spike's performances, which I always love, and I wish that Spike, quite frankly, acted more because I think he's a very, I think he's a, a really just affable, funny, great actor. He brings that kind of intangible lightness and funniness and what have you to his films. And this movie just covers the entire spectrum of all of the sort of tools he has in his tool belt. And he's using them all to just absolute perfect effect. And part of that is, as we've mentioned, the tremendous amount of pressure he's under in order to execute this perfectly. But he does, you know, he rises to the occasion. It's, it's, it's incredible. I think it's, it's a, it remains an underrated achievement. Whenever anyone, I think people talk about do the right thing, rightfully so, but I also think there's a little bit of like by default, that's kind of, you know, people offer that as, oh yeah, of course that's his best because it was kind of recognized by the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. For me, without a doubt, it's Malcolm X. It's like yeah. considering all the things that he went through to make the film, the pressure he was under, the, the lack of resources he had, uh, the ambition of that mm-hmm. film. Um, I, you know, and so many things that, like you said, normally can possibly, you know, go wrong in a, in a Spike film. In this film, they are perfectly played. Um, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. So, Aaron, Aaron, I'm curious to hear what you think Spike Lee's most like underrated, it's the wrong word, underrecognized film is like a movie that's amazing that people just maybe have slept on a little bit. Spike, like I think Phil was indicating, Spike, he occupies a rarefied space in that Spike has, um, you know, Spike has a mainstream following, you know, which is a different conversation. I think Eddie Murphy has this a little bit too. A little bit of a different conversation than um, his Black audience, to be honest with you, you know. So like in the same way that with Eddie Murphy films, you know, 
You talk to the mainstream, they're going to point out Beverly Hills Cop and Trading Places. Black people will bring up Boomerang, you know, hmm. um, where the two meet is maybe coming to America. Hmm. With Spike, I feel like for a lot of people, mainstream people, Spike didn't exist before Do the Right Thing. Um, hmm. For the black audience, you know, there's a lot of films he made even prior to Malcolm X. Um, the the one that always stands out to me to answer your question, Emily, is is Mo Better Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason why I say that is that that's an even even younger Denzel. That is Spike. That is a film that has like Wesley Snipes, um, Denzel in it. These are young. They're young masters of the universe at this point. This is Wesley before he's ever Blade or anything else or Passenger Fifty Seven in this year, yeah. nineteen ninety two. <laughs> this is Denzel before he's really Denzel. Um, you know, he's got John Turturro early on. You know, he's it's a film that that um, gets a lot of props amongst the the black audience, and that I think there's just a vibe of the music scene of New York um, of allowing Denzel to be sexual in a way that very few films allow. This is before Mississippi Masala even, um, and just kind of captures a vibe. Spike is also a character in that movie, and he's you know he's fantastic and he's humorous, but the combination of like the jazz scene, the the you know Spike doing a film that really was kind of a, a you know a tribute to his dad. Um, that so it feels very deeply personal. He does it on a shoestring budget, but the world still feels very vibrant and big. Jazz club, New York City, these larger than life characters. That's one that I I think gets a ton of respect in certain corners and is completely forgotten about. Um, and others. Now I'm a I'm a Spike fan, so there are many films that I could point out and be like, you know, I think Crooklyn is is underrated. You know? I love Crooklyn. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there are certain films because they they have mainstream players in them that get props, like Twenty Fifth Hour, because Ed Norton's in it and Rosario yeah. Dawson's in it, and I love Twenty Fifth Hour and I love Inside Man, and they're but those get respect because they have certain mainstream players in them. Um, but I look at the Crooklyn. I look at Crooklyn as being a film that's so deeply personal that that kind of you know really hits on his mother's death and and also as a burgeoning filmmaker myself from high school, uh, Crooklyn is a film that for any anyone who ever aspired to make films or to love film, um, there are going to be aspects of Crooklyn that you're going to just dig because you know that's in essence telling kind of part of, I mean, from a sister's point of view, but part of like that biography of fight, right? Of how you get to a point where you become, you want to be an artist. Yeah. It's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I, I, I've always been, um, I, I, we were mentioning earlier his, um, his love of musical sequences in his early films. I've been fascinated by the way that like his love of music is now, he kind of does it in documentaries now. Um, mm-hmm. It's kind of sapped out of his his features and his narrative features. It's now in, you know, he's made a number of films about Michael Jackson. He um, did the the film version of David Byrne's show, American Utopia. He did a wonderful film version of the musical Passing Strange, which is very hard to see now. It was on PBS and has now like mm-hmm. sort of dissipated into the ether. I'm uh, I love how he captures stage performance. That's a really hard thing for a director to do. And, um, you know, I, I, he should film every, he should film every musical basically. I, I think he's so good at it. It seems as though you mentioned this earlier, Aaron, that like his desire to maybe do a musical himself has dissipated to some degree. 
Um, hard, hard to say. I don't know what he has coming down the pike, quite honestly, um, in terms of a narrative film. Um, the film of his that I love that I, that I, I don't want to say it doesn't get the love it deserves, but he got game. I think is a fantastic movie. Absolutely. Um, I, I love that movie. I think it's, um, it's just a really lovely father son movie. Um, it's also clearly about how much Spike Lee loves basketball. Um, but it's just, it's, and Denzel is fantastic in it. Um, you know, again, I would say not the best female characters, but that's, that's, you know, for another day. But I, I, I do think that, um, I think that movie is, is underseen. And I think he went through a bit of a period there where, you know, um, girl six and get on the bus and, and smaller movies that I think didn't sort of hit as big as his other movies, um, which I think uh, I wonder in summer of Sam, like there's just a whole bunch there's a, there's a kind of a, a little bit of a string there um, where uh, it felt like maybe he was losing people to some degree, mass audiences, but then, you know, as you mentioned so, inside. Yeah. yeah I, I would say this, you know, cause, he Got Games is interesting that it is undeniably one of the best films he's ever made. It also comes at a different point, though, where Denzel is Denzel. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, he's got Ray Allen in it, who's like, a, you know, among sports circles is a big deal. It's based on Stephon Marbury's story from New York, and he's a big deal in the basketball world. So I rate that one a little bit differently than the ones that kind of like, you kind of have to point people towards, you know, he got game kind of has a, a place in pop culture, not to mention even the, the public enemy song that was done too. But it also to me spelled kind of like that transition into one of the things I think Spike does a lot in like the late nineties, early two thousands, which is there's maybe a little bit too much that you're trying to do. Um, <laughs> you know, so he got game really good, but every time I watch it, I don't think I'm alone. There's, storyline where Denzel is um is is has like a relationship with uh with uh Mila Jovovich. Mila Jovovich and you kind of feel like do we really need that, you know, like the, the film is so and for almost every film that follows that in the in the years uh after that, I feel like there's at least one, if not two or three of those. Um so when I watch Girl Six, there's one or two storylines, I'm like, you probably didn't need to do that. Um certainly um um I'm blanking on the film with um with um blanking on the film with with my guy Anthony Mackie where he plays the uh the um oh, yeah. um, oh god yeah uh, hold on um, um got Kerry Washington in it and he's he's playing a sperm donor yeah. um but I remember watching that film she hate me she hate me and I got to the point where I'm like there are literally four movies in this movie. <laughs> And and I don't know that they're all related, you know, yeah, yeah. but I, I know that you have a lot to say and sometimes you can try to cram it into one space, whereas, yeah, you know, you, you could probably parse out at least a couple of those and make, make that a film into itself. Well, there's also like the old boy remake where you're just got to ask yourself like, why and I don't I don't even mean just like Spike like we just didn't need that movie I'm not I'm not sure we needed right. a, an American remake of of Old Boy um, 
you know, Chirac was was interesting, had a lot of interesting stuff in it. Again, sort of overflowing with ideas. Um, Black Klansman, where he finally won his long overdue Academy Award, which he should have won many, many years previous. Um, a movie that I quite liked, a movie that I that I definitely want to rewatch. And I loved The Five Bloods. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see. I mean, he's still clearly got lots of things to say. So that, that in and of itself is exciting. What? One thing? I, sorry, go ahead, Aaron. No, I, I think he's. I think Spike is of that generation of, of directors that you know, like many of, of his peers, that would just make films until they can't anymore. It's just yes. that is what they do. Absolutely. I uh, um one thing I was fascinated by with Malcolm X is um and honestly we we haven't touched on the whole cultural conversation around this film, which was fascinating, but it didn't lead to Spike Lee getting to make other film biographies he tried and tried and tried to make a jackie robinson movie and a joe lewis movie and outwardly speaking those are more marketable than a malcolm x movie they have you know i don't know if you can call them feel good but they have feel good elements to them you know and like the idea of the joe lewis movie being just centered on his fights with max schmeling uh the like that's such a compelling way to structure that movie and they just never happened. They never got made. And um, I've always been like, uh, I've always wanted to see those movies because Spike obviously loves sports. And I feel yeah. like he's got, he'd, he'd be someone who could do those American figures justice. And the the Jackie Robinson movie turned into 42, which is pretty good. But like, I, I'm so sad I'll never get to see Spike Lee's version of that. You know, it's so funny you bring that up, Emily, because on the commentary, which I listened to on uh, the Criterion, which I believe is from a few years ago, um, I believe it's from the previous edition or one of the earlier commentaries that he did. So forgive me, I don't know what year it was. But during that big, crazy Joe Lewis shot, he's talking about how I really hope that I can make the Joe Lewis movie. I really want to make the Jackie Robinson movie, but it looks like Robert Redford's going to make it. And I'm just like, there was a moment when Robert Redford was going to make a Jackie Robinson movie, which obviously just never came to came to be. Um, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you. And and to underline your point, Emily, he's never made another film with Warner Brothers. Yeah, <laughs> like <laughs> I, this is this is on Wikipedia. So I don't know how how much to believe it, but it was like uh, they uh, he was uh, asked to consult on the script for Space Jam, and Warner right. Brothers was like, "We're not going to let you Space Jam. We're not going to let you do some punch up on a script for That's our crazy. Michael Jordan Bugs Bunny basketball movie." <laughs> I mean, it really speaks to that moment right where like they were and by they i mean warner brothers was quite outspoken about the fact that they took a loss on this movie they're like we with the amount of money we put into this thing we probably lost 30 million dollars which i'm not convinced is i mean listen hollywood accounting we're on strike right now but let me tell you hollywood accounting is some bullshit but it that that they would be so outspoken about a movie as important and as vital and as sort of politically, you know, uh, I don't want to say explosive, but like, you know, it, it was a charged movie. And for Warner Brothers to be this outspoken and to essentially blackball Spike Lee and never work with him again is completely insane, like on so many levels. Insane and, and yet, you know, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, I think a lot of things happened on that film that were not necessarily in Warner Brothers' best interest, right? You're talking about a an outspoken, strong voice director who went outside the system to get funding to complete it. 
you know, I, you know, I'm sure that there were bridges that were singed and burned during that whole process. Um, despite the fact that that still should be one of the towering achievements that Warner should really kind of hold off, hold up as a as a, an example of of what great filmmaking. What they can make what they can make yeah. there. I mean, yeah. it's it's. Um, I want to talk about one quick thing as we wrap this up, which is the very final moment of this film. Emily, you alluded to it with the uh, Nelson Mandela speech. Um, he So basically the film concludes uh, with Nelson Mandela del- delivering a speech to a school and quoting one of Malcolm's speeches. Um, notoriously, uh, Nelson would not say the final words of the speech, which was by any means necessary. Um, so they cut to footage of malcolm x saying by any means necessary and to me i almost think it's more powerful that way it's so good yeah right Mm -hmm. like it it feels fortuitous that that he wouldn't say the lines uh you know it's one of those things where i normally hate when the end of the movie is like and here's what the people really looked like but it's one of those things where you realize that device works sometimes and when it does work it 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 hits like (laughs) a sledgehammer yeah it's it's and and listen i understand politically nelson mandela was running for president at some point and he knew that these words would be used against him if he was to say it so obviously he couldn't say those words um you know fine but it just them having their hand forced to use the malcolm footage um and it just yeah just hits it it's it's a it hits you like just a, a gut punch at the end of just seeing him and i i I imagine Aaron sitting in that theater for the first time seeing the film, what a way to leave the theater to, right? Like to, to even just seeing three words said by the man himself must have just made you want to, you know, jump up and cheer. I mean, you're talking about one of the most effective orators in the last century. Um, and as, as great of a job as Denzel did and as great of a speaker as Denzel did, you know, you ever want to get inspired, listen to old Malcolm X, you know, uh, speeches. Like, he just has a way with with words, even few words. I, I thought, even if it worked out perfectly, like, you, it's, it's great that you're able to, to actually hear the man, and less is more, because you didn't want that to overshadow sure. the film itself. But just a reminder of, this is the guy and yeah. this is what he, you know, represented. And this is the kind of energy he brought. I thought was was fantastic. I also thought it was affusing because that was never really Mandela's thing, right? Was militant, you know, mm-hmm. by any means necessary. Mandela's more of a guy trying to bridge disparate groups at that point. Um, I think his message was slightly different, even though they, they both had. And, and so in some ways, bringing Mandela together with Malcolm again kind of, to me, shows how different approaches can be brought together to try to achieve the same goal. Um, I love the way it ended. I Even at the time when I first watched it, I thought, I didn't know that it was by, ne- by necessity that they did sure. it. Sure. But you felt like that's the right thing to do. And there's no more powerful way to end that film than the man himself. And then... Oh, wow. and, to, and to have Ozzie Davis reciting a speech that he gave at Malcolm's yeah. funeral. Um, and what a voice that man has. Like, it's just, it, there, there's, there's, there's so much gravity and, and beauty in his voice. And, and yeah, it's, it's, I, I, not to, not to, you know, mimic what Emily is saying, but this type of epilogue in a biopic, generally speaking, 
doesn't really work for me, right? When it becomes this sort of like giving them their flowers and it's all of this kind of, it, it, and it happens a fair amount in biopics and it just goes to show that Spike is just crushing it and doing it in a way that feels so organic and natural and neat. There's no other way that this film could have ended. I think there's a there's a personal element to it is what I found. Like the, the fact that Ozzy was actually there yeah. and actually was the one who delivered it, it comes across to me as so different than just a random actor totally, totally. saying some things about, you know, a great person who passed. I, it felt very intimate to me that that last portion. And, and to me that's part of why it worked. Totally. I hope that when they make the biopic of me, they just use some fo- they use some footage from one of these Zoom calls at the end. It's just yeah, like, there's absolutely. the real woman. That's who she really was. She was on sure. Zoom a lot. She's do on Zoom want, all the time. Do you, want fi- do you want Phil to do the voiceover? Yeah, I can, I can yeah. do it if you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. Please read yeah, a eulogy at my funeral that you repeat. Uh, no. <laughs> I, I mean, listen, I, we could talk about this film all day, and I gladly would with you, Aaron. Um, that being can, said, we should we should. Can yeah, I please, touch on yeah. the called the kind of this cultural conversation around the movie? Absolutely, because I read I always read a lot of the contemporaneous reviews, and I'm going to make yeah, this yeah. very fast. Please. But um, the, a lot of them referred to like the controversies around the movie. The reviews did, so I was like, well, what was yeah. what was this? And I went and looked that up, and so much of it was the production stuff and people Correct. sort of being like, "Why does Spike Lee need all this money?" You know that those questions. Anytime a movie becomes uh, known for its production, you get some of that. This seemed particularly uh, heated because Spike Lee is is uh, a figure who says what he's thinking, and also he's a black person, which sure. uh, which made both of those things more heated than they might have been with like. Martin Scorsese or someone else who's been through a similar situation, but also um, he, and this is a thing that's become still very controversial in journalism world. He asked that he be interviewed by black people for his promotional interviews. And he said, I'll speak with white interviewers. I think black interviewers are going to have a better understanding of what this movie is going for. He's literally just saying, I think that there are certain nuances in this that white people are not going to get without, you know, uh, just because of the nature of their mm-hmm. identities. And this is a thing that still comes up, you know, uh, uh, there will be uh, Brie Larson was, was like, went on, went on a tear about how we don't have enough women film critics and all of that is true. And it's, but it does consistently just rile people up when you're like, I, you know what, I will talk to you about this movie. If you um are Spike Lee saying that if you are a white interviewer, but mm-hmm. uh, I would much prefer to speak with black interviewers. And like, that was like a huge deal. And it still is whenever a filmmaker or actor, or someone sort of makes that request, because I guess there's an assumption on the part of the, 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 there's white... also the whole snowflake thing, right? Like just people being very, very precious, yep. um, you know, and, and I, I, no one seems to get more up in arms about feeling alienated than white people on the right, it certainly seems, mm. where they just and, and I think that I don't even think like reading the the interview stuff with Spike, he wasn't saying like I won't talk to yeah, white people. He talked like, he, he talk, was yeah. he was very open about it. He's like, I'll talk to whoever wants to talk to me about it. I just think that black people are gonna get yeah. perhaps get more out of this than than white people. And one of the things that happened was Premier magazine was like yes. we ended up hiring a black writer and a black editor. It's like oh great, wonderful. <laughs> like you didn't have any before? Like it, yeah, it was uh it was no, it, 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 go ahead. Here's the thing. It, uh, that's the thing is I feel like 
I mean, Spike knew what he was doing when he said that. He's not just saying that because, you know, it'll help the film and, you know, uh, it'll help me. And he's saying that because he knows by doing that, he has a platform to actually mm -hmm. change industries, to at least introduce some fresh blood. And even if one or two black journalists get their start just from that statement, yeah. it was worth it. You know, yeah. I, I think any time that, you know, you're shedding light on an underrepresented, uh, uh, you know, group of people. And here's the other thing. It takes a special type of individual to do that. In essence, you have a spike who is looking at it as like by any means necessary. So if there's going to be heat, I can take it. I'm fine. You know, if they're going to go after me for being whatever, mm -hmm. racist, whatever, none of that is true or accurate. But again, if this forces an empire or premier or whoever to like actually hire people who weren't there before so be it that's good yeah and he did you know he did still talk to the roger eberts of the world it wasn't like absolutely but yeah it was really misinterpreted as him making this demand and like ugh. i also think that as much of a shit disturber as i think you know spike lee likes to stir shit i and i don't say that in a bad way i think it's part of his charm, quite frankly, is that yeah. he likes to rile people up. But I also think, and you alluded to this, Aaron, it's all thought through. I don't think he's ever doing anything just to piss people off. I think he wants there to be some sort of good that comes out of all this stuff. And I think that he knows he can speak out about these things, and as he should. Um, so I just, I, I think that there is this sort of, you know, isn't Spike a stinker? Isn't he a rascal thing that he's kind of embraces to some degree? But I also think it all comes from a place of, of a deeply intellectual place. Yeah. The fact is that there are a lot of black artists who have careers now because True. of Spike. And that's True. not just journalists. Many of the individuals we mentioned, you know, Ernest Dickerson, the, the great, you know, DP goes on to become a director. Ruth Carter now winning Oscars. Not to mention Terrace Blanchard, not to mention many of the actors. Spike uh, is unique amongst filmmakers, not just black filmmakers, in that he really has been able to kind of be, a, um, you know, the center of a solar system that allowed other planets to kind of go and, and do their own thing. So um, I think at the time that, you know, uh, that was part of that. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I wish that I was more keyed into it back in 92 um you know i was living the 12 year old 12 year old 12 year old phil. phil living in suburban toronto was not nearly as keyed into malcolm <laughs> x as he should have been um but uh i yeah i you know i i think that it's it is one of those movies and i i guess this is the thing that's wonderful about movies in general especially movies as important as this one is they're here forever they're not going anywhere and you can watch them whenever, and they can I mean, change your you lives. Say whenever. that, Phil. But... <laughs> I, I mean, listen, you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't want to. We don't need to get into the idea of. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, yeah, so the landmark milestone films are always. I just and be with and us. this is one of those films that I came to late in the sense that you know I watched it probably I don't know ten twelve years ago something like that maybe more, and it, you know, you know, blew me away, and I wish I saw it sooner. But I, this is just all just saying like. Anybody can sit down and watch Malcolm X right now, and they should if they haven't, uh, or watch it again. But I just think that that the lasting power ultimately trumps anything else, right? The fact that what, however much money this movie made, or relationships, or controversy, all that shit is ultimately meaningless because you know the evidence is in the film itself. Yeah, 
So absolutely, yeah. Um, so there, I mean, we can rate this, but I'm going to give this a 99. So it doesn't ultimately really to me personally. Uh, I mean, I, I, it is my favorite Spike movie. I think it's a movie that I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm so happy that I bought the 4K. By the way, if you, you can buy the Criterion right now. It looks absolutely beautiful in 4K. The restoration is pristine. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's where I'm at. Emily, where are you on this film? Uh, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to. No, you know, I mean, you, you I'm, obviously... I'm, I'm, I'm 99. I was like, I was like, I'm never going to go higher than a 98 on this show because I, I like think that nothing's perfect. But like, I think right. 99 implies there's lack of because there's the hundred right there, but we're not going to. It. Sure, yeah, we're um, not going there. So yeah. anyway, 99. Uh, yeah, sure. this is this is uh, one of my two or three favorite movies of that year, and this year, 1992 includes one of my ten favorite movies of all time. So that does is it the, really? Yeah. That is oh, the level. I, that, we need to talk about that at some point. Yeah. But I'll, I, you know, I, I want to also say, just in the context of '92, for a quick second, when you look at, just for argument's sake, the Academy Awards that year, and you look at the five films that get nominated for Best Picture, um, I would argue this film definitely should have been nominated for Best Picture. But I also think that this film is just Overscent of a Woman. What? Yeah, <laughs> Overscent of a Woman. I know. Uh, it, it's. I, I just think that. It's in a category all its own, which I think was also used against it. You know what I mean? Um, like it felt like its own thing. And I don't think that the Academy could even really wrap their heads around what was there for what that's yeah, the, No, it's, it's, it's well ahead of its time. That is, that yeah. is for sure. By the way, because yes. Sin of a Woman gets, gets shit on so much, I, I really am interested in the, there's gotta be a sin of a woman defender apologist somewhere. And I, I really want to hear their perspective. Well, I'll be honest with you. We did our sense of the woman episode and okay. I, I'll just say, I didn't defend the movie. I don't think it really works in a 2023 lens, but it needs to be said that 12 year old Phil living in suburban Toronto thought it was a great movie back then and watched it a lot and thus it's kind of weirdly in my dna in a way that it probably shouldn't be but is kind of um it's not i mean come on it doesn't can't compare it to malcolm x but i do think that like i do want to say one quick thing and it feels Hoo-ah. like hua do you want to say hua indeed <laughs> I, what, I, what i wanted to say just because i feel like we didn't um totally unpack it just very briefly I do think one of the legacies of this film is that Denzel loses to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman, which is, you know, Academy politics, blah, 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 right? Um, we all agree Al Pacino deserved an Academy Award at some point or another, might have even won that year for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, instead of winning for Scent of a Woman. The one for Dick Tracy. Or Dick Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> but all of this is to say that I feel like so often, more than not, the movies that lose to the lesser thing, it's like, it almost helps their legacy in some weird, bizarro way. Right. Where it's just like, everyone's just like Denzel gives one of the best performances ever. Right. It's ridiculous that he didn't win. So they probably talk about the performance more than had he won the Academy Award for it. And this isn't to say that he shouldn't have won, but it's just this weird sort of, that's the absurdity of the Academy Awards. Fair but, enough. You know, Fair enough. Awesome. So do you do you think there's a bizarre universe somewhere where Al Pacino didn't win and somebody's going, he was great. <laughs> that, yeah. that was, why didn't anybody recognize that? 
Is that, is I, I absolutely think there's a bizarro universe where a bunch of white guys are screaming about how Al Pacino should have won. But yeah. uh, uh, to, to, to queer phobia scale, I'm giving this a one. It's not yeah, even sure. interested in queerness it's not, in it, any way. Even... <laughs> no, I, I mean, I do think that there's something. Uh, yes. What, one thing, though, I will say, yes. and I always want to ask Spike about it. And of course, I mean, you know, Spike himself hasn't necessarily been like the most in-depth portrayal, you know, portrayer of non-cis men or, or, you know, or of, um, or any lifestyle really outside of his own perspective. But whenever I've watched, there's the sequence where we're introduced to West Indian Archie Mm -hmm. and he has on one side Cadillac and on the other side Sammy and West Indian Archie and Sammy are very much macho, kind of like, you know, oh, this guy's suit and all of that. There's something about Cadillac whenever mm-hmm. I see it where I'm like, dude, that's a, that is his own movie. Yeah. That's <laughs> it in itself. Yeah. Like, that's, Spike, that's a, about as close as you get to Spike going like, okay, there's a side of New York, definitely, and, um, and in particular, like, that era of New York that mm-hmm. you know that he's not maybe the one to tell the story about but it's there um yeah. well i i that makes me want to ask the question as to whether or not you think that that's spike hinting at west indian archie having you know that he might not be heterosexual because never, we don't ever see him with women he doesn't there right. doesn't ever seem to be that component to him for what that's worth it, could be. There's there's never really a lean one way or another. He's kind no. of more paternal to everyone. He's Correct. paternal to yes. Malcolm. He's paternal to the the waitress who he gives mm-hmm. money to to tell mm-hmm. her not to pay attention to Malcolm. Yeah. So the only the only two areas, at least in this film, where I see touches on it at all is, is the Cadillac character, mm-hmm. um, and and also there's a little thing that's kind of like it's mentioned, but it since has been explored a little bit in books in recent years. So the character played by Roger Guinevere Smith, who I think his character's name is Rudy. He's, he's the, the driver for the, the, the heist. He mentions working for an old white guy who he tends to talk him. He gives him talcum powder oh, bath. Mm-hmm. And he mentions that the guy gets his, his rocks off doing that, basically. Uh-huh. He just mentions it and then keeps talking. Yeah. But that little section where he's talking about the guy gets his rocks off by him giving him bath has also been explored in, in books in recent years where they're saying that there's speculation that when Malcolm yeah. told that story, that might have been Malcolm who was giving those bads. Oh, that's interesting. As opposed to other characters who he kind of, you know... Projected it onto. Now, that's all speculation, you know, yeah. but, it's, but it's been mentioned a few times in, in books recently. Um, hmm. And of course, that's a different generation. That's a different way of talking about it. Nowadays, I think that's a lot that that's explored with more depth than the talcum powder bath that you, you know, glossed over. The, uh, yeah, the, the lives of uh, black, gay and trans people at that time, you know, they're richly documented in newspapers and other articles. And I wrote, that would be such a fascinating movie or TV show Absolutely. for someone to make. Absolutely. Um, well, Aaron, thank you so much for doing this. Aaron has to rate the film. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Aaron. Aaron. Uh, <laughs> zero to 99? I, I, I mean, you know, I'm, you know where I'm going with that. It I'm only made you want to be a filmmaker. <laughs> it was only like for a time my, my film obsession for, you know, a solid part of my high school uh, running. But 
Yeah, I would I would say 98 too. A 98. Okay. 98. Okay. All right. Um, Not perfect. There's, One there's away always, from perfect. There's yeah. always room. There's always room. But sure. that's 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 pretty close. Um, so Aaron, everyone should be watching SWAT, which I'm assuming is streaming on Paramount Plus. No, it yes, is, maybe it is currently <clears throat> you can catch it on CBS, of course, okay. in the uh, in the mm-hmm. fall, and you can catch it now on Netflix as well. Oh, Netflix, mm-hmm. okay. Great. Um, where you can start from from season one so if you want to need to catch up check it out actually it's one of those weird things we're in a work stoppage right now so i feel obligated to tell you but also (laughs) listen it's there it's not going anywhere let's put it that way so if you decide you want to watch it there you can um and people can follow you on twitter and instagram as well if they choose so to do so if if you oblige uh ar thomas tv um ar Um, thomas tv is the handle thank you so much for taking the time um we're i i hope to see you on the on the picket lines at some point um but uh if not good luck on everything and and uh and thank you so much for taking the time thank you phil thank you emily it's uh it's been a pleasure appreciate thank you it so much. Talk to you soon. Bye. all right thank you Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.